0: This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about, at least not by my co-host John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is January 27th, 2012. It's Friday. This is episode number 52. We would like to thank our sponsors today, SourceBits.com, software design and development services for iOS, Android, Mac, and the web. And MindNode, an intuitive mind mapping tool for Mac and iOS. We'll tell you more about those as the program continues. We also want to say thanks very much to VidMeUp.com for the bandwidth for this episode. VidMeUp is a free service that allows you to create your own video site. Your videos, your branding, VidMeUp.com. Hello, John Syracuse of Massachusetts.
1: Hello, Daniel Benjamin of many places in the South. (laughs) But originally the Northeast, it's complicated. I can't I don't know how to address you. Can we put this, uh, this optical illusion in the show notes? No, I think it's not relevant. Okay. But now everyone will want to know what it is. So if you want to know what it is, maybe we'll discuss it in the after dark. Okay. I will put it
0: in the show notes, and uh, we will not discuss it. So.
1: All right. Uh, some quick follow-up uh, from video game controllers several shows ago. Still getting links about that. These, uh, this one from Iannis Keller. Hope I did a good job with that. Uh, he gave a couple of neat links that I thought were worth uh, sending out to the listeners. But I didn't want to put them in the show notes for this show because this show is not going to be about video game controllers. So you're safe. Um, <laughs> so what I did was I put them in the show notes to the first episode we did about video game controllers, which was episode 49, Pinching the Harmonica. I put them as bonus links at the very bottom of the show notes so to get to them you can go to the show notes for this episode and the very first one will be a link to episode 49 and then go to the bottom and get those and he uh it's work of other people on the web he found a poster showing the evolution of video game controllers at popchartlabs.com you can buy it but it's also neat to just look at uh someone had a periodic table of controllers that showed you know a periodic table layout with uh, and it just shows the buttons which is kind of neat instead of showing the controllers just shows the button arrangements on them And there's an actual blog on Tumblr called A Bunch of Stuff About Game Controllers. Uh, And the title is accurate. So there's three links. Check them out. But we're not talking about video game controllers today. Today, we have a whole mess of follow-up from the last episode where we discussed the iBooks author announcement. And I I really hope I can get through this in time to uh, not have a very long show today. Okay. So... The impression I got from feedback is that people thought I was more pessimistic about this iBooks author thing than I have been about other recent Apple topics. And uh, I guess that's probably true. I I probably have a a background and a history on the whole eBooks thing that has me coming at this issue from a different angle than most people. Uh, You were were
0: an eBooks uh,
1: guy for a while. Yeah, just a little while, but you know, I do have that history and uh that probably influences how I see things. Uh and the same thing with people who are actually in the education market, they see things differently than I do coming from their from their perspective. Uh but I think mostly I was I was trying to mostly come at it from the perspective of an Apple watcher and seeing, you know, the way Apple conducts its business uh and uh, strategies that have worked in the past for Apple and other companies. Uh so while I was discussing the stuff in the last show, people were writing things for various publications. Uh, I put some show, put some links in the show notes to uh, a couple people that agreed with me. Uh, one was uh, Serenity Colwell at Macworld. She wrote an article called Holding Out for an EPUB Hero, where she laments all of the things that iBooks Author is not. Um, that's really neither here nor there about whether iBooks Author is a good idea for Apple to do, but it's kind of a distillation of the sentiment that uh, we were discussing last time that people wanted Apple to do one thing and Apple did something different. iBooks author is very clearly not that thing that people wanted. The, you know, generic EPUB editing tool. Uh, And so those people are still waiting. And there's another one that I'll get to a little bit later also on Macworld. Uh, Serenity also did a wish list for before the announcement was made for things that she hoped Apple would announce. You can see how what was announced did not satisfy that wish list. Uh, so the main uh, one of the main uh, topics of objection that people uh, brought up in emails was, why do I keep talking about the format? or Why is everyone talking about the format? Who who cares? Who cares about the file format? It's missing for the forest for the trees. That's not the, the thing that's uh, important uh, to be looking at. I think the reason everyone's talking about format is because I mean, I think we discussed this last show that the ebook market is and has always been in desperate need of some unifying format. Like the idea is that format wars arguing over who, you know, what format the, the data is in and who controls that format and, and who, you know, trying to control an industry by controlling the, the file format is generally viewed as not a good thing. So we didn't like it when it was like Blu-ray versus HD DVD, uh, and no matter who won, you know, from consumer's perspective, it's like, look, you know, I don't... There are advantages to one side or the other, and they're both proprietary formats owned by different consortiums of people, but from a consumer's perspective, you don't want have to deal with... Like, imagine if they had both won, and imagine if physical media wasn't on its way out. We'd be struggling through this world where there's 10 different formats for movies, and you have to have players that played multiple discs, and you can't keep track of who can play what. You know, common formats for digital content is good for everybody, and consumers hate it when... That's not the case, and the industry in general suffers for it. Although it's just the constant trend of like, well, why, why do these format wars exist? Well, the companies are like, ah, if we can get our format to become the de facto format, then we control the format, and then we have this incredible lever to control the industry. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think everyone agrees that's a bad thing. Right? No one is out there saying we need to have as many competing formats for music as possible that are completely incompatible. That way, it's competition, and you know that's how the marketplace is healthy. No, we just you know, we, we want, we don't want to deal with that. We just want to hear music. We just want to watch movies. And in, e, in eBooks, we just want to read the books. We don't really care about the format. Now the people who are in the industry are like, well, this format has advantages over that format and this format is controlled by a single vendor and this is controlled by a consortium and uh, all that other business. In, in general, I think we also all agree that all other things being equal, certainly the format that's not controlled by a single party or a small number of, of parties is better. Uh, unfortunately, all other things usually aren't equal. Uh, it's very often the case that the proprietary formats have technical advantages that the open ones don't. Um, so let me find one specific uh, objection to this. So Frank Malinowski uh, uh, took uh, uh, objected to my position that in cases where there is an existing proprietary format from the market leader, that the best strategy, uh, the most successful strategy is for everybody else but the market leader to rally behind an open standard. Because if each of the people who are not the market leader try to promote their own proprietary standard, none of them will have enough critical mass or weight or influence to overcome the market leader, even if their format is better. Uh, and I think the example I gave was when uh, Internet Explorer was the dominant browser and it had all these uh, IE-only extensions. Everyone else didn't try to field their own specific Apple or Netscape extensions. Or, you know, or whatever, they said. Well, let's rally behind web standards, and together, all of us versus AE uh, versus AE versus IE, maybe we can you know win that. And slowly, that has taken place. Of course, it also helps that Microsoft didn't update its browser for a long time. Uh, so Frank says, there's two problems with with this argument. First problem is that they only gave that one example—that just you know IE versus uh, standards based web things. He said, I can provide plenty of examples uh, uh, where this the same strategy was tried and it wasn't successful and the exa- some examples he gives are microsoft office versus open office uh the itunes music store versus plays for sure og Vorbis, or anything else <laughs> adobe pdf versus anything else photoshop versus gimp ms exchange versus open stuff h264 versus webm uh he goes on to other examples i don't think they're as strong as his opening ones. um he give gives iOS versus Android apps. I think his, his example started stronger. I am miss Office Result, open Office is a better example. Uh, so my response to this is to say, you know, so he listed some examples, and I think by the time you get to his last one, like iOS apps versus Android, it's like, well, Android is more open than iOS, but really they're both controlled by single parties. It's not like, you know, an entire industry rallying behind Android to fight iOS. It kind of is in terms of the carriers wanting something they can customize and stuff, but like, you know, truthfully, Google controls Android. Uh, no one else has the the capability of forking Android and developing it at the same pace that Google does because they don't have enough engineers and they're not the ones who wrote it, you know, so. Uh, uh, but my main response is there are many, many, many more examples than the ones he gave of where a dominant proprietary format was challenged by other proprietary formats and the other ones were not able to unseat it. That's the common case is that, you know, to so some proprietary format is going to win and everyone's got their, you know, WordPerfect files or right now files or nicest writer files none of them could unseat doc.doc doc, which was also proprietary you know they all those other competitors to microsoft word in in the olden days when there were more than when there was more than one word processor out there none of them could unseat uh, uh ms office and they all have their own proprietary file formats uh the only chance you can have is if everyone rallies behind an open format open office has not been successful to defeat microsoft office mostly because i think uh, office suites are not that interesting interesting or important anymore, and Microsoft's Office is good enough and is the standard, so there's not a lot of excitement around Open Office. But uh, file, you know, the the pressure to go open has forced Microsoft to try to have a more open file format with the DocX business, and we have things like PDF that are not still controlled by a single company but are also kind of open standards that anyone can implement, unlike .doc, which you know, anyone not anyone can implement, even though there's supposedly a kind of a spec. It's like, you know, you can't that that file format is still controlled by Microsoft, and although Apple can try to read doc documents, it can't read them all and can't read them all well. Uh, some more examples of uh, where, uh, you know, I just gave the one example of open versus closed. Some more examples are like uh, TCPIP versus like Apple Talk or NetBios or whatever, or the Internet versus AOL. Where A- AOL was, people don't remember this, but AOL was massively dominant, uh, but we all kind of knew that It's, you know, AOL, the biggest internet uh, provider in the entire United States versus everybody else who's behind the internet. So AOL was one big rich company with lots of power and everyone else rallied behind the internet as opposed to everyone else rallying behind Genie or eWorld or, I don't know, can you name some other ones? Hmm. Like uh, all those other proprietary things. The the only way you can unseat a big proprietary leader is to get everybody behind something that's not controlled by by one party. Someone, Someone in the chat room was saying, what? AOL was dominant? Yes, Yes, it was dominant. It it used to be that, you know, a few nerds had internet access. And then if anybody else you knew who wasn't a nerd had internet access, they had AOL. Those were dark days indeed, but it happened. Uh, And TCPIP was another thing. It's like, oh, it's not as good as these other proprietary standards. not as good as Novell Netware. It's not as good as Apple Talk for this particular reason. You know, it doesn't matter. The, the, The open standard eventually unseated whatever was the dominant proprietary standard. Sometimes there wasn't a single dominant proprietary standard, so it's easier for the open one to sweep through. But, you know, in cases like AOL, where it really was one big dog in the world of internet service provider, the internet just, you know, everyone else behind the internet came and took it away. Uh, And the second mistake, Frank says, I made is to lump textbooks in with general book sales. And I will get to that in a future point. I think he's more right on that than he was in the first point. Uh, So Gruber had some more articles where he was arguing back and forth with various people on the web uh, about the file format and uh, the issues involved in it. And what, one of the conclu- conclusions of one of Gruber's posts where he's responding to, I wish I knew he was responding to, it. I should have this link open. Uh, this is quoting from Gruber. He says, Apple's not in this game to reduce the cross-platform burdens of the publishing industry. If the publishing industry wants to reduce the number of formats it supports and the hassles of converting from one format to another, Apple's pitch would be to go exclusively to the iBook store. Do you remember that post? I have it in the show notes. Yeah. So, I, I, this is something that was brought up on another podcast that I listened to, that I think is true. A lot of people confuse someone explaining Apple's position to someone supporting Apple's position. And it's like you know, if, if you can, if you can explain something from the perspective of Apple, it's like, well, you would never have written that if you didn't agree with it. Even if you're not, even if you're clearly saying Apple is doing this because not, I think. Apple is right to do this because, you know what I mean? Yeah. And for people who follow Apple and understand Apple, it's frustrating to us that other people don't understand Apple as well and we want to explain now. So this is why Apple is doing this. And as soon as you write that, they go, oh, you know, everything you wrote there, you must support. I'm just explaining to you what, what Apple's reasoning is. You know what I mean? Now, you can also mix that with disagreement or agreement. Uh, but the, just the explanation of the strategy doesn't really imply one of the, uh, one or the other. Uh, and reading that reminded me of an article I wrote back in, uh, April, uh, for Ars Technica called Apple's wager. Uh, and it was about, it, there was a, me explaining what I think Apple is doing. And then at the end I did offer my opinion and said, well, you know, this strategy has some potential downsides. Uh, and, it, it, this was about uh, getting developers to develop for iOS, and you know all the iOS stuff, App Store, uh, locking developers into a single platform for distribution, and applying all these rules to them and stuff like that. Uh, and here's a quote from that article: "Anything that has a chance of slowing down the progress of the platform simply has to go. And the best way Apple knows to ensure that the platform progresses is by controlling its own destiny in every way that it can." That it can. This is a general statement about Apple that could apply to anything it was specifically talking about then you know why does apple exert such control over its development platform uh even though it pisses off developers even though developers hate it why would they do that it's because apple wants to advance and stay ahead and it wants to be you know it wants to make sure its platform stays ahead of its competitors and it wants to change rapidly and apple's big thing in recent decades has been the only way the fastest way we can make progress is by making sure we control our own destiny in every possible way that's so we need the power to to change to enforce to make you know to bend things to our will without having to go through committees or processes or a negotiation with the community or anything like that because the most important thing and this is why it was called apple's wager they were betting that the most important thing is to advance their platform quickly quickly quickly, even if along the way you're pissing people off because that's just that's just the cost of progress and it's a bet it's saying. We're going to piss people off like crazy, but we're doing that because we think we really need to have control. And that's the way we're going to win in the end. And it's a risky wager, as I say in in the the end of the article, because it's very easy to think everything's going along swimmingly right up to the point where everyone freaks out and revolts on. you. (laughs) So Apple has been balancing that uh, pretty well, but this is very similar with the eBooks thing. You know, the best way it knows to ensure platform progress is by controlling its own destiny in every way that it can. Well, it's doing the same thing in the eBook market. It's go, It wants to, uh, you know, as Gruber said, if you know, if you in the publishing industry think you're, you know it's too annoying for you to support multiple formats, just do everything on the iBookstore. It's the same thing with iOS. You want to do a cro- make a cross-platform app using Flash, you know, so you can develop one mobile app and deploy on all of the mobile platforms. Uh, no, tough luck, you can't do that. Yeah, we're making you do a totally separate native application for iOS. If you just want to support for one platform, just develop for iOS. Like that's doesn't that sound familiar? That's, that's you could replace iBookstore with iOS, in that. Inclusion that group had it would be exactly the same thing. It's not, our, it's not our problem that you have to support 10 different mobile platforms. If you just want to support one, we want to make it so ours is the only one you have to support. And if you don't like it, you know, well, that's your problem. It's not our problem. We're, we are advancing our platform. We have demands. This is the way things have to be. And uh, I think I talked about that in, in the last show. I don't think... I, I think their position is much stronger in iOS than it is in in the the ebook business. You know what I mean like they they're much more able to say you just want to make one mobile app web app? Fine, make it for iOS because they can say well, iOS is where you make all the money. And uh iOS customers are better than Android customers because they spend more like you know, we have a huge installed base. We can make you lots of money this is even if it's not going to be the only platform you support, it should be the first for these very concrete reasons. Whereas in you know eBooks, that's not, you can't make that pitch as well. You can't say, Hey, you should only distribute your ebook to the iBook store uh, because we sell the most books. Well, they don't well, because people make the most money selling through us. I don't think they do, but I think it's just a volume business and Amazon has matched their rates. You know, they're not the market leader there. Uh, let's see. I think I have some stuff out of order here. Um,
0: you want, you want a minute to, uh, to research it? I can do our first sponsor. That's a good idea. MindNode. You using these guys? MindNode? I got to get to this app if you're not using it. It's an, it's an intuitive mind map. You would love that. Oh, this is so you. This is perfect for you. It's an intuitive mind mapping tool for Mac and for iOS. So whether you're, you're, you're brainstorming for your next project, you're organizing your show notes for hypercritical, you're organizing your life. You're planning your vacation, something you never do. You don't, you don't go on vacation, but other people do. This isn't Node, is what you want to try here. It lets you collect, structure, and expand your ideas. It has a built-in Dropbox syncing. It has built-in Wi-Fi sharing. Your biggest ideas, they can go anywhere your iPhone goes, or in your case, your iPod Touch. And so think of it like this. MindNode, easy mind mapping. It's for Mac, it's for iPad, it's for iPhone. You go to mindnode.com and that's, uh, that's where everything is so please go there please check it out great sponsor and uh, these guys are just great it's a g- really just the best app go check it out mindnote.com you use this Sean?
1: I do not but I should check it out check it I've out heard. anything that has mind in the title I, I immediately think it's some sort of uh, thing from Star Trek it's gonna do a mind meld with me gonna augment my mind
0: Vulcan the
1: Vulcan mind meld. Boy, I think it's all out of order on these things. All right. Uh one one individual note here from McKay Thomas. I hope it's really I really hope it's not Thomas McKay. <laughs> oh, I think it's McKay <laughs> Thomas. Uh, it's a, a nice a nice blog post he wrote called High Schools Are Step One of Two. Hmm. And he's what he thinks of Apple's strategy is that uh, they understand the the entrenched power infrastructure surrounding university bookstores and selling books to colleges like there are people there who are making a lot of money who really don't want someone else coming in and taking any of that money and there's a much lower barrier to entry in terms of entrenched commercial interest anyway although perhaps not government regulation uh, for getting at the high schools because high schools you know at the very least high schools are always much more cash strapped than universities uh, public high schools we're talking about here um and so they can say, "We're here to help. Uh, we can get you something cheaper. we can make we can make it your school look better uh, because it'll be all high tech and whizzy, and we'll save you money on textbooks and th- that's that's a good pitch. And uh, the argument in this article is that a great uh, part of this strategy is that you get the kids when they're young. You get them used to the idea that, oh, when I was in high school, we got all our textbooks on the iPad. And they were cool and had all this neat stuff in it and I'm used to it. And then I go to college and I have to go to this bookstore and pay 500 bucks at the beginning of every semester for these gigantic tomes. Or I got to buy used ones that are all written in and beat up. I mean, th- that would be a big drop off from the experience from their high school experience going to college. You know what I mean? Uh, versus the current experiences of well, our experiences when we were kids probably is you go to high school and maybe if you're lucky, you get newish textbooks. But usually they're used textbooks that people right. have written in and stuff. And you're giving them at the beginning of the year and you got to lug them around and put them in your locker and then you give them back at the end of the year. And then you go to college and it's like oh, you go to the fancy university bookstore and you can get brand new books. But they're they really expensive, but they're filled with all this super advanced, you know, interesting knowledge. It If it's not a step up, then at the very least, it's a lateral move. But if you spend your entire high school career getting your curriculum through an iPad, going to a college like that is going to look bad. And and Suddenly, the incoming freshmen at colleges are going to start looking on universities and saying, well, I give this one a demerit because they use the stupid old book system that I don't understand and they don't know who, or care who makes the money off uh, university textbooks. All they know is that it was cooler in high school. And so colleges will, will figure out, well, if we want to attract more incoming freshmen, we should think about giving them what they expect in terms of you know, electronic curriculum. And we don't want to look worse than what they did in high school. This is kind of, this reminded me kind of of the, I don't know if it was a conscious strategy, but an effective strategy of uh, making C-level executives want to own iPhones, even if they weren't allowed in the business because the IT people had it all locked down to to BlackBerry and stuff like that. Yeah. But the execs would buy iPhones and say, I don't care. I'm I'm your boss. Let this phone in the network. Let's make, make it this work. work. Fig- figure it out. Yeah. And it's like a backdoor because They didn't want to... One way to come at it would be like to go to the IT people and say, I know you love BlackBerry, but what can we do... To help you consider deploying iPhones and it's like, well, it's got to have a physical keyboard and got to do this and it's got to be that. And, you know, they did address those needs with not the physical keyboard, but like the remote wipe and the exchange support, like they did that. But the other strategy probably worked just as well, if not better, of just making a phone that everybody wants, especially, you know, uh, people with a lot of money, you know, launch at 600 bucks or whatever. It's a fancy... luxury item. And once those guys get it, it kind of trickles down. Well, this is kind of like a trickle up. Get them, get them while they're young. And this is like the back door into getting into universities. Just like giving the execs was a door to getting into the enterprise with the iPhone. And speaking of strategy, uh, a couple people brought this up and I had it in my notes for last show and somehow missed it probably because it was just a single line item and I have too many damn notes. Uh, I wrote an article uh, last year called the Apple Strategy Tax. Uh, And this was a sort of a specific case of the general idea of a strategy tax, which I first read about from Joel Spolsky. Uh, The idea is that a strategy tax is when a company that does lots of things can't do one thing that it's doing as well as it could possibly do it because doing that one thing really well would hurt some other part of its business. I think one of the examples I gave was like... uh, when uh, uh internet explorer was getting rich text editing capabilities like well you have you have a text box in a web browser but we don't want to make the text box too powerful because then it's they were so afraid that the web would like replace microsoft word you know sort of like a google docs i think so the, the strategy text there was you would say, tell the ie team don't don't spend too much time making the rich text editing capabilities of ie super awesome i mean you can make them good but don't make them too good <laughs> uh this I don't know if this actually happened. This is just an example of like well, what would be example. It's like a conflict of interest across an organization where you're 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 fighting with one hand tied behind your back because you're so afraid of hurting some other part of your business. Um, uh, and this comes up because iBooks author can see you could you could look at, if you look at it a certain way, is another victim of strategy tax. Because if the iBooks author team it really depends on what their goal was. Like, this, is, this gets into semantics. But if if you were to assume that the iBooks author team, their goal was to make an awesome electronic publishing editing application and Apple didn't sell books and Apple didn't have any, you know, sort of a vested interest in there, like say they were an independent company, you would think that they would make an application that would, that would be more of a recognition of the market as it exists. You know, where Amazon Kindle is the the dominant platform and they have a proprietary format and you can kind of target that. And then there's EPUB, which is the open standard, right? Instead, iBooks author is 100% focused on Apple Store, making stuff that can only be sold in Apple Store, an Apple special format. Uh, and it it doesn't look like the application that would have been made by, by an independent party. Uh, and the strategy tax is that don't do anything that strengthens our competitors because we have a bookstore. And if you make an application that makes it really easy to put things in the Kindle bookstore, that doesn't help us. Like you're hurting us there. Don't we? We have a vested interest. We have we have our own store, and you can't just make a generic application now. Like I said, that's kind of semantic, because you can say, well, maybe the team's that wasn't the team's goal. The team's goal was not to make a generic. You know, as, as Gruber was saying, the team's goal was to make a really great application to make it easier to target our store. So maybe, in fact, the entire purpose of, of the iBooks author application was as an adjunct to the iBooks store strategy and not an independent application. But clearly, there's, there, oh, I view it as a strategy tax because there's something preventing Apple from making an application that a lot of people would want, and that thing is a, a vested interest in something different. You know what I mean?
0: A vested Interest in something different,
1: yeah. Like because it, if they were just saying people, you know, an electronic book editing application, people want that. Let's make it. They said no, 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 no. no we they have we a have, goal in mind. Yeah, we have a store. We have to support our store. You know, we're not out to solve the customer's problem. The customer, customer is going to say their problem is it's such a pain to electronically publish stuff. Well, we don't. You know, Apple says well that's not the problem we're interested in solving. Our problem is the iBook store isn't selling ten times more books than Amazon. So how do we solve that problem? And that's not a customer problem. That's an Apple problem. You know what I mean? And when a company is solving its own problem, it's harder to pitch customers on why that's such an awesome thing when they've got an existing problem and they want solved. Now, again, Apple thinks that this is the best strategy, similarly as it was with iOS, where Apple was saying, "We we need a total control. And if it's a big problem for your developers, tough luck, because we think in the end, if we do this, our platform will be so much more successful and customers will love it so much more, that that's eventually good for you that our customers will spend money, that will grow the base, that will send, sell tons of iPhones. So just just hang on, developers. I know it kind of sucks for you and it's annoying, but when the checks come at the end of the month or quarter or however Apple pays, uh, you'll be happy about it. Uh, but in the iBooks author case, maybe they're trying that same strategy, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think their position is strong. Uh, I think you mentioned it when you are talking about this on the talk show. It's one of the reasons that we think people might, people tend to prefer the Kindle format is because you can read it anywhere.
0: Like well, they're not. You know, any device that you have. Any device that you have, you can pretty much get the Kindle app for. Mac, iPhone, Kindle, obviously. Yeah.
1: And and they and Amazon introduced the Kindle Fire, which is a tablet. But what they didn't do was say, well, now that we've got the Kindle Fire, you can't read Kindle books on the iPad. Right. And people were talking about that. Like, gee, geez, when, when Amazon comes out with this Kindle Fire thing that's so much like an iPad, are they gonna still let the Kindle app be on the iPad? So far, it looks like they are. Uh, maybe that will change someday, but I I don't it seems to be integral to it's kind of like Netflix strategy. Right? Netflix is on everything. You buy a set of speakers for your computer, they probably can stream Netflix, right? They they're <laughs> you know, everything can stream Netflix. And Amazon has said, do you have a device that conceivably read Kindle books? We'll put some app on it. Maybe it's a crappy app like the the Kindle reader for the Mac is not a great application, but you can read them on your Mac. You can read them on your PC. You can read them on all the Kindles. You can read them on the iPad. I'm assuming there's Android versions of these things too. They just want people to be able to read their stuff. And it's a very different strategy than Apple's. Um, So what, what might I have missed in my pessimistic assessment of iBooks author? I think the biggest thing that many people pointed out, and I think they're right, is that when I was speaking of the whole idea that if you're not the market leader, uh, you should rally behind an open format. Uh, Amazon is the market leader in electronic books in general. But are they the market leader in electronic textbooks? Probably not. Uh, So if you subdivide and you say, ignoring who's the leader in electronic books there is no strong, you know, single, competent leader in electronic textbooks, and Apple wants to be that leader. So it doesn't really matter that Kindle is com- is dominant in selling, you know, fiction and nonfiction books to, to end users. We're talking about the education market, you know? And uh, the other they thing... They don't is- control, but they... And this
0: is where it gets weird, is because the, I don't, I don't know who really understands the education market. I mean, Apple... You explained already why they want that inroad, and it makes sense. You know, the kids they learn it, they come up. But do you th- is this Apple's attempt to say that they understand it or to jump in and say that they control it? You know what I'm talking about?
1: Well, as Jobs told Isaacson in the biography, that the anyone who's an outsider who looks at the market for textbooks sees dysfunction. They see, you know, obviously the the local school boards and the government stuff like that, uh, but they also see entrenched interests that are used to selling you big stacks of paper for lots of money that aren't, I don't want to say that aren't competent, but that, that aren't enthusiastic about about going digital. Or even if they are enthusiastic are not very good at it, because th- these are book companies that print paper books and it's not an easy transition for them to to change. It's kind of like the record labels, where even if there's people inside the record labels who grieve digital music was the future, they weren't equipped. They didn't have software development departments. They had no platform. They They didn't understand the web. They didn't, you know it just wasn't their business. So if you're looking from the outside, you're like, boy, these bozos, they're not going to figure it out. So Apple's thinking, well, geez, we've got all the skill set to be, to be the big dog in this scenario. So let's go in there and let's be the big dog. You know? Uh, and the, the biggest strength that a lot of people brought up is they said, well, Apple, you know, Amazon's not the leader in textbooks. So maybe Apple could be, and the bar is really, really low. Cause it, regardless of what Apple does with locking into one format and all this stuff, the, The consensus is that the competition, the existing competition and any potential competition is probably going to be much, much worse in terms of quality. And that's Apple's big strength. They're going to say like, oh, so fine, go ahead. You rally around an open format. You guys couldn't program your way out of a paper bag. (laughs) You don't understand platforms. You can't make a nice application. You know, look at all the existing open EPUB readers. They're not made to the level of quality and fit and finish that, uh, that Apple's tools are. And I think... Microsoft, uh, Microsoft. I think Apple is probably not even afraid of the big people like Microsoft and Adobe, because they're gonna say oh, those those guys they don't know how to make a great application that people love to use, right? Apple really believes in its strength, uh, in you know that they can make a better product than everybody else. And even if they do things that customers don't like, they say, well, we're still better than the competition. And from what I heard from the people who seem to be in the education world, was that the existing products are terrible, just really, really terrible. The existing electronic textbook products, like they're better than nothing. But they're not Apple quality, so it's it's a question it's a question of what the value system is. Is the value system of the people making these decisions about uh, electronic textbook publishing? Are they going to value those Apple-y things—quality of the product, the polish, ease of use, uh, how easy it is to do something fancy—you know—all the things that that, that are Apple strengths—are they going to value that over not being locked into a single vendor, not being locked onto a single platform, you know, being having a more a workflow that allows this content to be viewed in places other than iPads. Um, and uh, as a lot of people were chastising me for being so pes- pessimistic, uh, I think one of the things they may have been missing, maybe if they're not long-time listeners or hadn't done a context switch in their head, is that just because I think Apple's done a lot of things wrong with iBooks author, it doesn't mean I don't think they're still the best. The best example of that is TiVo, which I complain about endlessly and yet still say they are still the best DVR that I've used. So you can you can be making terrible mistakes and be, be truly awful on many fronts, just like TiVo, but you can still be the best in the market. That's a, not a that's not a great win. Like you're going you know, to say, "Boy, we're the dominant textbook publisher because we're not as sucky as everybody else." Mm. It's hard. It's hard to get behind that and and be proud of it. You'd rather be proud, it's like we are the best. Uh, you know, we make the best digital music player. And it's not because not just because everyone else sucks. iPods legitimately are cool and awesome and people love them versus well, people really don't like that eula that we did and they really hate being confined to the iPad, but everyone else sucks worse. So we're going to get that market. That's not, that's not a clean victory in my book. Uh, the other thing I, I talked about, uh, and I I was re- actually referencing the tweets of Glenn Fleischman when I said it, and he later wrote an article about it, uh, I don't know if I did a reference this article in the show. I think it was being published around the same time. It's called Apple's textbook plan feels like a blast from the past. And he was, uh, echoing, uh, my feelings that we've seen this type of pitch before about, uh, textbooks and how, if you fill in with whizzy graphics and full motion video and stuff that, that, that students will be engaged. And that's what the problem with education is. And, you know, interactive, uh, multimedia, CD-ROM, Wizzy graphics will solve our education problems. Um, and everyone came down on me and So these aren't like multimedia CD-ROMs. Uh, this is totally different. Don't you understand? The iPad makes it completely different. Uh, I think I, I brought that up in the last show that, yeah, the, the thing that the one thing that is different in this is that the, the vehicle, the I don't know what you call it, the, the platform is the iPad. And as we've seen, you would think, oh, so what? It's on a touchscreen. So if we would take the same pictures that are on a PC screen, and put them on a touchscreen, suddenly it's different. Well, yeah, it actually is different. That's something that a lot of people still haven't come to terms with, but I think we've all used iPads enough to know that there really is a real physical, psychological, physiological difference between consuming consuming content and using an iPad versus using a PC. It makes a big difference, especially for young people and especially in school. So that is the big differentiator, but... The, the Apple presentation, which, by the way, I now have watched. Everyone yelled at me for not having watched it. I, I apologized last show. I, told, I said I hadn't watched it yet, but now I have watched it. It didn't really change much of my opinions because, as I said the last show, I did watch the live blog of it. So it's not like I didn't know what was presented. But I actually watched the video uh, all the way through. And the video made a couple of allusions to the magical iPad experience, but mostly pushed on, look at these amazing videos, look at these amazing pictures, look at this interactivity, look at, you know, and it was very, especially when it's up on a presentation screen, you know, it's hard to differentiate in that context that this is something that people are touching versus something appearing on a screen, on a PC screen. But they were mostly leaning on sort of the old tired arguments that have mostly been disproven about how computers and interactivity and video and graphics we'll solve the problems of education and make all our kids smarter and make them uh, pay attention in school and do better on tests and just everything. Mm -hmm. So this Glenn Fleischmarco lays out this argument and then people, uh, vociferously disagree with him as well. You can see in the comments. Uh, so here's a quote from somebody who's even more pessimistic about technology, uh, revolutionizing education than Glenn or I It says, uh, I used to think that technology could help education. I probably spearheaded giving away more computer equipment to schools than anybody else on the planet, but I've had to come to the inevitable conclusion that the problem is not one that technology can hope to solve. What's wrong with education cannot be fixed with technology. No amount of technology will make a dent. That sounds pretty darn pessimistic about technologies uh, helping education. So that's a quote from Steve Jobs in February of 1996. (laughs) Now, Obviously... Anytime Job says, oh, he said we're never gonna watch video on an iPad and he's just doing that thing. This is nineteen ninety six. This is before he even came back from Apple. This was certainly not a ploy of like right. I'm gonna say this quote to keep competitors away, and then I'm gonna come back to the company, and then right before I die of cancer, I'm gonna make my company <laughs> you know, a decade later, I'm gonna make my company uh distribute textbooks. This was his legitimate opinion after having spent a long time. He really bought into the the you know the hype. And you can't blame him the first time around, like when you know, the Apple twos were coming out, oh personal computers in the school, this is gonna revolutionize education, and we're gonna give these computers out to the school and boy it's going to be a bicycle for the mind and everything's going to take off and it's going to revolutionize the way we learn and he saw that it didn't and he came to the conclusion by 1996 that what's wrong with education cannot be fixed with technology no amount of technology will make a dent hmm. they did not put this quote up on the screen surprisingly during the education presentation I don't, I don't understand why. <laughs> well, right. why wouldn't they do that and I, I think if you put Steve Jobs on that stage he would agree with this statement uh, again Mostly what Apple is trying to do with, with iBooks and iBooks Author is not not to fix, fix education with technology, to fix education, to fix a part of education that's that's not optimal. The whole textbook industry of how, you know, it's just the same way physical media was not optimal. Distributing music on CD was not optimal and doing it digitally is much better. Uh, cutting out middlemen, uh, the advantages of digital or physical products, uh, things that, that digital content can do that physical media cannot do. So this is taking a part of education that's not as efficient as it could be in trying to make it more efficient, especially when you've got entrenched interests who, who are like resisting a move to digital because they want to keep making money on their paper textbooks and you know, all that business. It's not, you know, it, it would have been more honest for them to, to, instead of that presentation saying, oh, look at all these great, cool things the textbook do. It would have been more honest to say, I'm going to go blow by blow through how sick and dysfunctional the current textbook industry is you can't kind of do that when you're on stage partnering with the biggest textbook manufacturers in the United States. You know what I mean? But that would have been, I think that would have been a more, if you really wanted to know what was behind Steve jobs in particular, his idea that this market that they need to enter this market is that the market is messed up. It's not, it's not the way it should be. It's like they they didn't, all mobile phones were crappy. All smartphones were crappy. Uh, There was, you know, music CDs were kind of annoying to to use. Uh, There are, places in that they see well, there's a problem in the world and they say, well, we have the technology to fix this. There's no reason this has to be crappy like this. And the only reason it's staying crappy is because these people are just dragging their feet. So let's get them to move along either by attacking them or partnering them or, or doing both at once or doing a judo move or whatever on them. <laughs> so they can't get up there and say, and, and really explain here's why we're entering this market because it's a big hairy mess and we think we can fix it. They have to present it another way. Uh, but by the way they chose to present it, did have a lot of that rehashing of old tired arguments about interactivity and video and everything revolutionizing education, and that comes off looking like you're saying that technology will fix education. Even that's not what they said, but that that's what that's the impression it gives. You know, and that's uh, Glenn's Glenn's big objection, my big objection. It's kind of like fetishizing the artifacts of education, like that it's not. That these that these iPads and these textbooks are what really matter in education, and uh, I was thinking, of, looking at that, of uh, why why do not why is, uh, do I object to that? What is it that I think is the real theory of education? I thought of uh, Maslow's hi- Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Have you heard of that in your liberal arts education?
0: No, is this you trying to trick me? No, you like, don't know Merlin Mar- always Merlin always me? tricks me. He'll say, "Oh, have you heard of this thing?" I'll say, "Sure," and I'll be like, "Well, I've just made it up."
1: Oh yeah, I remember when he got you on the uh, the the. Uh, yeah, he, he, likes to, he likes to play uncertainty tricks. He principally said some other uncertainty. Yeah,
0: yeah he likes to, to try and trick people.
1: No, it's really Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's linked okay. in Wikipedia in the, in the show notes. Uh, and I, I think there's a, a hierarchy of needs in education that looks something like this. Uh, people who are in education can quibble about the order that I put things, but like, what, what is the most important thing in education? Uh, so number one, I would say, is physical safety. This is similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a compressed version you have to feel safe at school. The facilities can't be falling around on your head. They have to have climate control. Like, just the basics of you You feel safe at school. Your your life is not in danger. Right. The, the ceiling is not going to fall on you and you're not freezing to death. That's number one. I think everyone agrees on that. It's kind of like, why do you start there? Duh. Right. The second one I would say was emotional safety, where it's not just a safe environment physically, but also a safe environment where, you know, bullying and, and the balance of positive and negative reinforcement from teachers and students that it's a place where you don't feel you're under attack and fearful emotionally uh or in ways other than physical so now now you're now you're in a position where you can actually potentially learn mm-hmm. right uh, and then the, the next one right after physical and emotional safety i think is good teachers class size is kind of wrapped up in this but in general i think that is the the third most important thing is who is up there teaching the material. It's not the textbook. It's not the material. It's not the curriculum. It's not what you have to learn. It's good teachers. Because as we all know, I think everyone has been through education. One or two good teachers have a profound effect on, on your life and your future. I think there have been studies of this, of like these kids who had this one good teacher in like third grade had, you know, 20% higher income and more success and happiness in their adult life than these people who didn't have this one teacher. You know, it's huge, huge effect. I mean... I left out like good parents and family life and stuff as I'm just focusing on things that the school can do itself. So right. the school they can't,
0: they can't go in your house and make it
1: right. Your parents Obviously that has a massive influence as well, but I'm saying what can a school do provide physical safety, provide a safe emotional environment and have good teachers. And then way, way down at the bottom of the list probably is education materials. Uh, make sure you have, uh, you know, good blackboards or computers or textbooks and stuff like that. But that's, it's so, you know, not only is it not number one, I think it's down, you know, it's it's po- possibly the the lowest thing on the list. Because really, if you think about those great teachers that you had, do you remember like, oh, well, uh, you know, that teacher was great because they had a smart whiteboard that we could draw on. <laughs> no. Like, I mean, it's because we're all old and we didn't have cool things like this. But the materials you have, how beat up your textbook is, how good your textbook was, whether you're forced to learn this thing in this grade and this thing in that grade because of some stupid change in curriculum that you don't have a control over. At all. It all comes down to, you know, physical safety, emotional safety, good teachers, and that's why no amount of technology will make a dent because those other things are so much more important. They're massively dominant in terms of the, the quality of education. That if you have all those things, you can give those people rocks and sticks, and you know, and and enforce on them a stupid curriculum with a crappy textbook, and they would still produce students who understand material and are are more successful. You know. And so this video where they can't... This presentation where they can't come out and say this, the textbook industry is messed up and that's why we've decided to enter it. Oh, and by the way, here are all the people who messed it up and we're going to partner with them. Since they can't say that, <laughs> I, I would have liked to have seen them acknowledge right up front the the, the idea that was in everybody's mind who was watching us is that uh, this is all this business about technology fixing education, it's not about that. We think that... Uh, we're not going to, to fix education. I don't, I don't know how they could say it without throwing the, without throwing the textbook people under the bus. But uh, to, to acknowledge the, 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 the counter argument that, that uh, technology doesn't matter and to say we think what's really important about education is not whizzy videos and cool graphics, but we'll have them too. But th- what really matters is, and then they have to make some other kind of pitch ab- about uh, why this is different than all previous efforts to uh, put technology into school. So maybe they were stuck between a rock and a hard place because there isn't a really strong argument there and certainly people like cool demos. Uh, but when I was thinking that someone... God, I don't know if he, the, the man himself sent this to me. I think he did. Paul Anderson. I thought teacher, you were going to say Steve Jobs. No. Paul Anderson, a, a teacher in Montana. I think he sent me this link himself. It's a YouTube video. Uh, what was the title of it? Um, It's called... You know, i got to go to my show notes link. While, while, while you do that, I'll do our
0: second. See, you're going, to, you're going to coordinate this. Well, look at that. Every time I lose track. Every of time my... you lose track and you can't find your notes, it's, just, it's a time to take a break. There you go. This episode is also sponsored by SourceBits.com. Love, I love these guys. It's providing software design and development services for iOS, Android, Mac, and the web. It sounds like everything, right? That's what, that's what they focus on. They focus on, of course, you just want an iOS app. They'll make that for you. You want an iOS app that has an Android uh, equivalent and something that ties into the Mac and also has a web service? They do all of those things. They, they, they specialize in this. Now, they'll, do, they'll do just the iOS app, but a lot of the time, and if you heard this week's Build and Analyze, you heard Marco talking about why Instapaper needs a web service. You need a web service, they'll build the whole thing. Bleeding-edge technologies is what these guys are all about. They have a deep experience, and they have one of the most important things a successful track record. You bring them your idea, they transform it into a functional, tested, visually stunning world-class app, and they do it fast. They save you money because they do it right the first time. They know what they're doing. It's cutting-edge stuff. Sourcebits.com. Longtime time sponsor. Absolutely love these guys. Great guys. I had a meeting with them uh, last week. Great things coming in 2012. Check them out. Sourcebits.com. Find your, find your thing, find your notes, yes. find your place.
1: The title of this video. I know I've lost the guy's name. I'm so disorganized. I, See, I told well, you. I, 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 I can just imagine, imagine, imagine your
0: office. It's, it's things stacked up, papers yeah. everywhere.
1: Paul Anderson, teacher in Montana, sent me this video called Using Game Design to Improve My Classroom. Hmm. Now, gamification has a bad rep lately for anyone who follows technology. I mean, when I say gamification, I bet people their teeth go on edge, like, oh, that gamification thing, you know, because it comes up in all the startup tech blogs and it's kind of like buzzwordy, uh, uh, But mostly I think it's because unscrupulous companies have been using game theory to manipulate people for evil. You know what I mean? And that's why people hate the, the idea of gamification or the, the word gamification. Uh, so Farmville is a good example. And, they, you know, Zynga is the, the poster boy for using gamification for evil, where they have these... These Facebook games that from a gamer's perspective are not particularly fun or particularly good games but hammer so hard on the hot buttons of gamification that they end up manipulating millions of people into obsessively playing in these games when really what they're doing is you know, it amounts more to work than to play uh, and so someone made a parody game a long time ago, uh, maybe not that long Uh, What was his name? Ian Bogost. Uh, There's an article about it in Wired that I put in the show notes. He made a parody game called Cow Clicker. Have you heard of this? (laughs) No. I can't believe people haven't. I was even debated putting in this, talking about this. I was like, oh, surely everyone's heard of Cow Clicker, but not everyone travels in gamer circles, I guess. Uh, The Wikipedia entry is very short and basically boils it down uh, pretty well for you. The Wired article is more interesting, you know, magazine article talking about the person. Uh, So. This was uh, he made this game in response to these, you know, Facebook Zynga type games where there's they're mostly just making you click at regular intervals and give them money. And he said, well, let me just boil that down. I'm going to make a game called cow clicker. Uh, And so here's here's the functionality of the game uh, distilled. So you got a cow, obviously, uh, and your cow can be clicked, but you can only click your cow once every six hours. But you can earn additional clicks. (laughs) and other items by spending this, this in-game currency. And players can collect more clicks. What happens when you click it? Nothing. I mean, well, you got to click. And players can collect more clicks by inviting their friends into their pasture. So this is like literally, it's a clicking thing, and it withholds your ability to click, and you then need to do things to satisfy the game to get the ability to click again. Which is very similar to, you know, he's saying, like this is basically what Farmville Bill is. Come back at this time, click on these things, click on your crops, click on, you know... That the whole thing is just you're getting sucked into this world and buy you know eventually they get you to buy virtual items so you can do more things in this virtual world and it's not there's many good articles I, I should have found some of them about how fundamentally different playing those type of games is than than what we consider actual play for enjoyment purposes uh, and these games are successful because they take advantages uh, take advantage of human nature to make it. Addictive and compelling, and you know this—the this social responsibility of your friend sends you a stupid fruit, and now you feel the social obligation to respond to them in kind, and then you get involved in this world, and really just—if so, if someone looks from the outside looking in, and saying you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and tap a bunch of things on your on your uh, iPad screen and Facebook, so that you can harvest your crops, <laughs> so that you won't lose those. Fruits that you but you know it's you'll start losing connection with reality so like, what are you, are you even having fun anymore it's like no but i have I, it's like the sunk cost uh, phenomenon where you're like well i'm invested now and i spent all this money and all this time and i can't let these crops go and i gotta send these things to these people and this person said you know <laughs> So, cow clickers like fine we're gonna do a thing and you just click the <laughs> damn cow and we're gonna make you want to click that cow like crazy we're gonna use all these game theory advancements and it's, a, it's supposed to be a satire to and more not a more a satire than a parody to say to make people realize wake up people you know this is what you're doing in those zynga games you were literally just just like this kick clicking the cow uh, and the wired story is about how cow clicker became fantastically popular and people loved it and they wanted to buy different cows and they want, they were into it and they just they couldn't wait Want so the cow the cow graphic is like a cow sort of like stand a three-quarter view of a cow <laughs> facing to the right uh he came out with the cow that faces to the left and people went crazy for. <laughs> oh, it. Like, oh my God, every single cow would face to the right until then, but now there's a cow that faces to the left. You want, you know, he, he could created a monster. He was trying to make a satire and he found out it's not possible to satire it because <laughs> he, he had made a satire that so efficiently pushed those same buttons oh, so that geez. people were going, people didn't understand it was a the parody. They wanted to do that cow clicker thing. You can get the, the you know, the golden cow, the steel cow, and, you know, just, and literally just the cow that you click on. Uh, so, and he became... Quite depressed and upset about his inability to make a satire that people don't take literally, uh, and, and in 2011, finally he decided to have a cowpocalypse <laughs> and remove all the cows in a cow rapture. So he basically killed he killed everybody's cow, and they were all taken up to cow heaven. Uh, and then, so fans constantly harangued him, "Oh, you want, you're going to bring the cows back? What can we do to get those cows back? I want my you know." <laughs> so this is from the Wikipedia article, and it's also in the Wired article responding to a fan's complaint that the game was not a fun game after the cow rapture. <laughs> now that, now that it's the only <laughs> thing in the game, the cow is gone and I can't click on it. It's not a fun game anymore. He responded, it wasn't very fun before either. So this, this is all a, you should read the article about the cow clicker thing, the Wired article that I linked. Uh, it's, it's all kind of depressing and uh, funny at the same time. But this is why gamification gets a bad rap because of these companies that are using it for evil. <laughs> but gamification can be used for good, can definitely be used for good. It's, it's a power, I think the the evil that's done with it shows what what a powerful tool it is. And so some people are asking me, well, if you didn't want them to pitch you on, you know, this whizzy multimedia stuff with iBooks author is going to make education better, what should they have said? I'm not saying this is what they should have said, but this is one example of something that's at least a, Newer argument, not a new argument, but a newer argument than the the multimedia cd ROM computers in school Apple II revolutionized the world argument they could have said uh, we believe that uh, engaging students is not about <laughs> whizzy graphics or cool you know diagrams, although those can help too it's really about uh, uh, using game theory to help them learn and so this paul anderson video is a video explaining how he uses gamification and game theory to help his class to learn better um and this is an ap biology class in high school so it, it the, the three tenets of, of of uh game world that he outlines at the beginning of the video is that uh like gaming school should be fun so that's easy to say. Everyone just say, yes, it's supposed to be fun. It's like, well, yeah, well, how do you make it fun? But he's laying that out there because games, people mostly, people agree that games are fun. Uh, failure is commonplace occurrence and something that happens all the time and it's okay. That happens in games, right? With, you know, not these, so much these Zynga games, but in real games, part of the thing is that you can fail and you just try again and you fail and try. Like, it's a consequence-free environment for for learning. Now, you may maybe what you're learning is how to time a jump particularly well to land on a platform, but you can use that same... Framework where failure is something okay, and and you know to to overcome the fear people have of like participating in school because they're afraid they're going to be wrong. You know what I mean. And and the final one is leveling, which is from the the role playing game world where people want to people attach value to achievements in a virtual world that don't don't make any sense when viewed from the outside or in an objective way, but internally they do they do mean a lot. And it's the same you know the the gamification that the that these Zynga games make you keep wanting to be in this world and clicking to achieve these things that only have meaning in this world that works on people. So, uh, you know, the, the example he gives in the video is that uh, I'm sure everyone has been in a class where one, the teacher has said this, you're all starting out with an A in this class. Like on the first day of class, <laughs> you heard this one? Yeah. And you know,
0: <laughs> you all start out with an A and then if you, I guess the way that works is that every error that you make or the mistake you make, where all you need to do is keep the A. Exactly. And right. then he's if, you, to, if, if you, you you do something poorly, it, it, it lowers it. But you have an A right now. Everybody has an A right
1: now. Yeah, and they do that. I think the teachers do that. Maybe they're trying to counteract the idea of someone coming into the class and going, oh, I'm no good at math. Um, I know. I'll just be happy if I get a C in this class. I'm probably not going to do well. He wants to come in day one and say, everybody has an A to make that guy who thinks he's going to get C, because he's like, oh, I'm no good at math. To Think, hey, I've got an A in math right now. And if I just if I just work hard, I can keep that. That's not effective game theory or at the very least the more effective uh technique that we've learned through through uh game playing is the system of leveling where you start at level one where you're a wimp and you've got like the wooden sword and uh and and no shield and a leather armor right and motivate the people to to level up to advance so You know, instead of starting out with an A and getting worse, you start out with like basically an F. And he uses like categories like you're a slime mold, like is (laughs) a biological thing. So you keep going up the, you know, the evolutionary ladder to be a more complex form of life. Right. Uh, So that you're climbing the ladder so that maybe by halfway through the course, you're still, you know, only level three where some people are already level 10, you know, and level level 15 is an A or something. It doesn't mean you can't make it. It's just like in a video game where your friends are playing, you know, a, a massively multiplayer game, and they've leveled faster than you. Well, you can just grind a little bit and catch up with them, and then and then go raiding with them when you, once you've matched their level, right? And peop, kids obviously are familiar with that phenomenon because they've played video games. But that's—it's a way to say, you know, hey, you, you can make it. It's just like in the video games, or you know, you know, you just because you're behind now, you can still build your way up to an A. And that, that thing of like, oh, well, let me grind a little bit so I can match your level. Well that's like let me study a little bit harder so I can catch up with you. You're you're tricking them into studying and learning the material so they can achieve a level that they've seen the other people achieve and they and, and the fact that they fail at doing it or whatever uh, it's fine you get to try another time. And you look at the stuff he's using to build this course, it's mostly like web-based materials and a bunch of software that I never heard of. One of them is called Moodle. <laughs> it's all kind of like a patchwork of of programs I've never heard of that maybe people in the education world have heard of, but it's not like a single vendor is providing a a uh, turnkey solution to all his needs. He's assembling this from bits and pieces, you know, and tweaking it as he goes and learning how the kids game the system, which obviously they will to, tr- you know, like multiple choice tests. You don't want to give them infinite chances because levels go through and through process of elimination, you know, so he has randomized questions and a certain number of times you can try a test and, uh, what else do they have like uh, leaderboards there's class versus class competitions where like you may not be doing that well, but your class as a whole is competing against the other class as a whole, which is kind of like clan battling in, in the online multiplayer game space. There are leaderboards they, they have big histograms of the the class's performance of you know what level everybody is at this again, I'm not pitching like oh gamification is the is the is the be all end all of education, but this is an example of a newish approach to improving education that yeah it involves technology it involves web-based software and electronic tracking of things oh nothing has he added a narrative like a narrative framework like someone's coming back in time to look for people to help them with biology so it's like a story you go through with these are ways to engage students that don't necessarily have anything to do with technology like you can imagine someone in the you know 18th century building a narrative class structure around learning latin or whatever to engage students and trick them into learning using game theory that had nothing to do with technology. just had to do with, you know, Dungeons and Dragons pen and paper, like all happening in their head type of stuff. <laughs> you can use these tools that are so effective. You can use them for good instead of evil. Uh, and that would, that's an example of a pitch that Apple could have gone with That Technology is not the, not what we're selling here. It's really a new, better way to, to get kids to learn. And technology is just a tool to let us do that versus, uh, what I think is also a noble goal to take a dysfunctional market for education materials and make it less dysfunctional while at the same time become, becoming the new dominant leader in it. But it's not it, the presentation they gave wasn't either one of those things. Uh, and oh, man, this is follow up. Huh? One final note on, on the presentation, which I finally watched Phil Schiller during the presentation, which, by the way, he's looking very trim and slim, don't you think he's slimming down? He's come a long way. He's yeah. getting this in the spotlight more often. He's yeah. got a, you know, a and, good, good for He did his Phil Schiller normal job. I think he did a good job. But uh, at one point he said uh, the iPad is, quote, a lot more durable than paper and binding. Now, what he probably meant was, you know, digital content is more durable than physical Enduring, content. Enduring, I think, is what he meant. Because mean. you, you can physically, you know, you can infinitely copy it. It doesn't lose quality, you know, all, you know, all that all that business. Right. That's not what he said, though. What he said was that the iPad was a lot more durable than paper and binding. And I, I tweeted about this, the absurdity of this, which was probably just a, I don't know, poorly presented. He has a valid point in there, but that's not the point he made. So calling him out for it is like, you know, ha whatever. Then people argued with this. That They said, no, actually, the point that he accidentally made there is valid. And that the iPad really is more durable than textbooks because textbooks, they get the pages torn out. And if they get wet, they... That you know, and people draw on them, and all these horrible things happen, and you know. So, here, here are some pros and cons, just to, to lay this out for people. So, the, the pros of digital content over physical content. So, it's more durable, as you said. You can make infinite copies of it, in theory. DRM allowing, blah blah blah. But you know, it doesn't it doesn't deteriorate with use. That's why we like digital music, even though it's crappier quality than vinyl. Every time you play that vinyl record, it gets worse. Uh, you don't have any torn pages. Uh, I think uh, a point that not a lot of people brought up, but I think is the, probably the biggest point in favor of, of the iPad is that if you have, if you're using an iPad for all your curriculum, you concentrate all of the students' care on preserving a single thing. Instead of having 15 books and having to like make sure you don't drop all the different books and putting them in your locker and take them out, you just got this one thing to concentrate on. It's like the the sack of flour baby that you got in school. I right? just concentrate all your your energy on making sure you don't break this thing, and the iPad like looks fancy and shiny, and kids acknowledge, kids understand that it's more expensive, even though if that iPad is half as expensive as all their textbooks combined, they don't think of it that way, right? So, in that way, you could make kids a lot more careful with an iPad than they are with their books. But the cons are pretty obvious. The, the thing I put in my, when I tweeted about this is, uh, does anyone want to do a drop test? Let's hmm. drop a textbook from waist height onto a, a linoleum floor in a school. <laughs> and now let's do the same thing with an iPad. And so that's just a straight drop. Let's try the, whoops, knocked it off my desk and have it rotate as it goes down and lands on the hard linoleum floor, which, you know, maybe you'll bend the cover. Maybe the, the book will go splayed out on the thing. But, but you can that, still use it. Yeah, that iPad, man, it doesn't take much impact to shatter that screen.
0: It really uh, doesn't. And there was somebody else who who wrote in, I'm pretty sure it was to us, that said that uh, they wouldn't get their kids, maybe it was on Twitter, they wouldn't get their kids iPads because they wouldn't want them to get stolen. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not saying nobody would steal a textbook. Like, I remember actually kids doing that, like they would lose or whatever their textbook and they'd have to pay 50 bucks or something for it so they'd steal one. I mean, an iPad, you would steal whether or not there's textbooks on it. You know, if somebody wants to steal it, there's a lot of value in an iPad.
1: That comes down to physical safety, though. I mean... That's that's your, are, that's
0: your number one
1: reason. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> you didn't include... Well, you didn't include... Are, like, that. maybe you leave the iPads in school, or if you take them home, like, you're just creating an environment of physical safety. It's not... I don't think you can blame Apple like that guy did when he left the Apple store. Did you see the story?
0: Yeah, a guy leaves the Apple store. We get to put that in the show notes. A guy le- walks out of the Apple store, and I guess he he bought what was in an iMac. He bought something, and... You hear stories of like somebody walking out of the Apple store and getting around. That's not what happened. He got, he walked out of the store, went into his car, drove, got gas, picked up a sandwich. And I, was it there at the, while they were at the sandwich shop or something like that? that
1: he, he was getting gas. He went into like the, to the little mini mart to get yeah. something for two minutes and came back out and everything had been taken out of his car. Yeah. We'll
0: They'd put, we'll, we will put that along with everything else in the show notes. And by the way, we want to say thanks to helpspot.com, uh, the loveliest ladies uh, in help desk business creating really great help desk software help desk stop software if i can say it correctly Helpspot.com is where you go to find out about that but yeah th- th- isn't this crazy i mean he was a lawyer though he so. was stopped but he was like it was it's creepy because he was stalked yeah it's, it wasn't just like he walks out of the store put your hands on you know okay okay take the imac go they like followed him for a long time didn't he have his daughter with him too
1: and this is—I'm sure this is a common story—but the absurd part of it is, of course, that he thinks it's Apple's. This is Apple's fault?
0: Well, making such a desirable. I don't think Apple's, he think. I don't think he thinks. Well, he just a, wants to he's just a lawyer. I mean, this country—that was America, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to say that there isn't a litigious lawyer, but that's just ridiculous. How
1: could that be Apple's fault? Yeah, it's just—it's absurd. But this is a real phenomenon. Like when, when I, we haven't even discussed this on the show. Somehow, even after you yelled at me for not discussing it, you didn't bring it up. But when, when uh, I got my wife's iPhone, iPhone, which she got for Christmas, she got an iPhone 4S. Uh, when we were going out, and we bought it together, when we were going out of the store with it, I, I said, you know, she put it into her purse. Like they just give you the little box or whatever. And I said, you gotta zip your purse up. And you know, we were eating at a restaurant. I said, you gotta keep that out of the way. Like, don't let anyone see that you have. Don't don't get the bag from the Apple Store. Don't let anyone see that's pop sticking out of your purse as an iPhone. Just put it in there, zip it up, and keep it away. Of course, I'm I'm a New Yorker, so that's my natural inclination, <laughs> anyways, to avoid criminals uh, and assume that everyone's gonna steal my stuff. But, but yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. But no, we we got a sidetracked here on the on the, the durability. So yeah, that is that is probably a con in the iPad column is that it is a moral desirable theft target. Uh, but yeah, he may have meant data durability. Uh, but it was funny. If you just look at the video, it seems like he's saying that they are actually more physically durable and, uh, you know, uh, more physically sturdy than, than books because textbooks are incredibly physically. Sturdy. That was part of, that was another point in the presentation where he says, uh, you look at these textbooks, like they're old and you just keep having them for years and you can't get rid of them. And then later he says, oh, the textbooks aren't aren't durable and they get all beat up and everything like that. Well, they, they do get all beat up, but they also last for years. Like I had textbooks in school that were probably like seven, eight years old. And some people from education industry and schools were, uh, wrote to tell me that, yeah, we try to replace textbooks on a shorter cycle, but we have some, you know, they're often around for five, six, seven years or longer if there's not a budget to replace them. And so you just keep using them. Uh, I don't think, by the way, that all this is any reason not to use iPads in school. It's just, it's going to be a new, it's a new fact of life. You don't, oh, we can't put computers in school because they're too delicate, kids will break them. Well, you know, you just have to deal with that. Find a way to deal with it. You can't stop progress because the new thing is not exactly like the old thing in every possible way. Um, That's not my argument at all. But if I were making a pitch for why schools should use iPads, I would probably not hammer on the durability thing. Even if I had a valid point about data durability, it's too easy to look like you're trying to say that this $500 piece of glass is uh, more durable than a big blob of paper. Uh, And there are many things I can do about this. I also, how will schools deal with this? Someone in the chat room said that uh, schools uh, near him, I think he said in Massachusetts, even let students buy insurance. So it's like 40 bucks a year for the insurance on the thing. Uh, Otherwise, if you break it, you got to pay for it. There's plenty of, ways to fix this you can put cases on them a lot of people said are you trying to say that apple's going to give people naked ipads that's crazy you know that's not true i think they would give naked ipads it's not their problem to not break them If you break them you'll buy another one <laughs> you know schools can put cases on them but there's no case you can put on that thing that's going to change the fact that it's a big pane of glass and you know you get <laughs> how many times have you seen a student a high school student get up from desk with a book and accidentally hit the edge of the book and it flips off the desk <laughs> it rotates to the ground from desk height onto a linoleum school floor is death for an iPad, and lots of people in the chat room also said, "Oh, you know, I've dropped my iPad from the top of a twelve-foot ladder onto a pit of spikes, and it survived." I'm sure <laughs> you know, it, it, there are plenty of things that you can do. You know, oh, you got lucky, and it didn't happen to break. It just on these people, I would challenge them. I'll get a physical textbook. You get your iPad, and we will do a series of scientific tests at different angles and velocities under different surfaces. And, and you are you up for that? And no, of course they're not, because they know. Despite the fact that, oh, well, it's a lot more durable than I thought. I dropped it onto my linoleum kitchen floor and it survived because it landed the right way. So, boy, I thought it would have broken, but it didn't. But there's other people who are like, I dropped it three inches onto concrete and it shattered.
0: Right, and there's something else to consider for those who are saying things like that. If if you don't have kids, kids find a way to break something that that you think you, you can't be broken. They'll find a way and they'll do it the first time.
1: Well, not even the first time though. Is I think it's all about trials. Like, oh, you know, my thing survived. Like, oh, so would you? You know, are, you want to use science now? Let's do a series of trials. No one wants to do a series of trials because <laughs> they know in their heart like it's not as durable. <laughs> right. They just want that one lucky one to count as their data. But point. aren't you? Aren't you, you just?
0: Say, aren't you just picking on semantics? Maybe he meant more. You know, and I used the I, word I, before. I was, I was
1: making a joke. Like it's funny that what he what he said. I, I, I don't think that Apple as a company in its heart believes that the iPads are more durable than than books. But the presentation was humorously misleading in that particular portion that I think if you let anyone watch it they will all have the same reaction like wait is he saying the iPads are more durable it was not well worded so I was, this is not like complaining that Apple's trying to lie to people or mislead them They're, it was just sloppy presentation you know and and I was that's why I said if you're trying to pitch iPad in education just stay away from the durability topic or come at it with an acknowledgement like people are going to say that iPads are going to break but actually it has these other advantages you know don't come at it and, and don't tried to like do the Republican strategy thing where you take what is your considered your weakness and try to make it your strength by just contradicting it. You know, well, in fact, iPads are super durable or they're more durable than you think. Just don't, that's not a strong point for you. If you're pitching it, you have many other good strong points to the iPad. Let's not hammer on that one, you know, and if you're going to do anything about data durability, make it clear that you're not talking about the hardware. Boy, so that was follow up. That was follow up for uh, iBooks author.
0: Okay, so what's today's topic?:
1: you the Wikipedia, i guess
0: seventy two minutes in you want to you want to do the topic
1: Yeah, see if I was trying to have short shows, I would end it now What are, you, what are your feelings on that i I don't
0: know you're You're, you're the one with the new year's resolution
1: yeah I, today's notes just yeah they're just too much. But we could I, I'm we gonna, could do, do it. Wikipedia. I can't pu- I don't want to push it off for two things. I'm going to do Wikipedia. I don't think it'll take that long.
0: Well, how about this? We'll just we'll give ourselves a time limit. We'll say 15 minutes. It's 12:15. I don't agree. Eastern time, and we'll <laughs>
1: set a limit. <laughs> that's too low of a limit. We'll see how this goes. Uh, so, Wikipedia. I guess I'll start by saying, what? How much experience do you have with Wikipedia? Let's start there.
0: How much experience do I have with it? Do you mean yeah. as a as a person who uses it as the perfect and infinitely correct source of all wisdom? That I use it for that all the time. Anything I'm that's on Wikipedia about, like, has the to
1: continuum. Be true. The continuum here is person who's heard the word Wikipedia on the news once. That's like the low end of the okay. spectrum, and the other end is a I don't know what their names are, but like a Wikipedia administrator editor who has been you know like a moderator on this like a, a, a right like they
0: have certain pages that they help curate and verify content on yeah and they're
1: very and they've been in wikipedia for years and they know all the rules of the system and all that stuff or whatever like that's that's the continuum so where in that continuum are you
0: i i would say i'm probably at, at the midpoint in that i have edited or contributed to several wikipedia entries in a non-malicious beneficial kind of way uh so maybe that's kind of, if, if the first thing you said was a one and the last thing you said was a 10, maybe I'm like a six.
1: So you've done edits, but like not, you're not like spending hours and hours and just hundreds of thousands of words editing. You just them like minor edits, like maybe three or four pages of text. You'd say you've contributed lifetime. To a less, less, less than that. Yeah. Just like small edits.
0: Yeah. Like when I see something that's just egregiously wrong and I know that it's wrong, uh, I might get in there and edit it. Uh, but that, that's a, a rare,
1: a rare thing. So and my my experience is similar or was similar up until maybe 2006, where like I I read Wikipedia of course as we all do and made some minor edits here and there where you see something that's wrong. Now, what do you given that? What do you think Wikipedia is like? If you had to explain, not to explain to somebody else what it is, but to say like, here is why it, Wikipedia is a useful thing. Like, what is what is the goal of Wikipedia?
0: I don't know what they would define as their goal, but I, I would define the the goal from my perception as being um, a place to have current, and I, I would put accurate, whether that's true or not is debatable, but I would say to have very current, up-to-date, and accurate information about everything that matters.
1: And and the the main thing I, I would say, and my, my impression of Wikipedia was that, yeah, so that's what they're trying to do. And the thing that makes it different is it's like, let's everybody work together to achieve that goal, right? Like, right. it's not a bunch of people write it and you read it. It's everybody. We we work together. Anybody can do it. Like, there's no the barrier to entry is low. And it, we're just, we're all going to work together towards this common goal. And it's what the common goal is that... I th- that is interesting to me because what were you saying like what would you say is the goal of all of us working together on these wikipedia pages
0: The goal is to have the most complete and open-minded entry possible so that we're not just getting you know one particular potentially biased data set we're getting the complete picture we're getting the whole story we're getting it in an unbiased forward-thinking open-minded and true and fact-checked and cross-checked kind of way
1: it's like collaborative collaborative editing that a whole bunch of people can work together to herd something towards a better final state than just two or three authors even if the two or three authors are experts the the pitch of wikipedia uh, is that you know in, in my mind back back when i first was uh getting into wikipedia was that all of us are going to work together and all of us together can do better than those two or three guys at like britannica or right. okay so wait or, a minute where where are you on this scale uh well let me tell my wikipedia story then you'll see where i ended up okay so this is what i thought wikipedia was uh and my first real like i did like minor edits like fixing typos and i don't know i, I even probably i mostly probably did anonymous edits so the first time, i think the first time i actually created an account uh was when back in 2006 when somebody made an article uh, in wikipedia for f t. f. f do you know what that stands for yes you do s
0: t f f t. f oh i have no idea i thought you were saying S-T-F-U. no i have no not, i have no idea what that is yeah
1: so that uh f t. f. f stands for fix the effing finder but it 's not effing uh and it was a an acronym that 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 came to start i think it had its origins in the r s technical forums like I, this is back when I was writing all those articles about how the finder wasn't very good and how I thought it should be and the problem with the Mac OS X finder uh, and people in the forums as a shorthand for like, what do you want to see in the next version of Mac OS X or do you think these public betas are going along or how the developer releases? It was, you know, one of the things they would list is like, oh, well, the it, printing's got to be better and it's too slow and FTFF, uh, it became sort of a, a term of art, you might say, and, and eventually it leaked out of the Ars Technica forums onto all the other Mac websites that were big back then, Mac Central, and Apple Insider. Any any Anytime where there was a bunch of nerds discussing, like, this new Mac OS X thing that's supposed to replace Mac OS 9, what do we think about it? What does it need? What does it have? What does it not have? Or like, hey, you know, uh, uh, 10.1 is pretty good and everything, but they still didn't have DFF, right? So someone made a Wikipedia article for this, because if someone was reading, if you were to read all of the Mac web back then and particularly the forums and everything and you saw this acronym you maybe not, wouldn't understand what it is where does this come from why did someone make up this acronym why are these people all writing fdff with exclamation points after it you know uh, not just like urban dictionary like what does it stand for but like the origins and the, what what's behind this who cares about the finder what's so different about this finder than the other finder or anything like that and for obvious reasons i i thought i had stuff to contribute to this because like oh you know I never used this term in any of my articles, and the first time first time I used it was I was two years after it appeared. I was referencing other people using it to say, you know, I've been complaining about the the Finder, you know, it's the old f fdff meme that you see, you know. So I wasn't the originator of this term, uh, and you know, I I, I figured well, but I do know a lot about it, and so I can give background like why why did these people invent this term and what are they trying to say? Because I did have you know I did have a lot of say in the, the objections to the Finder. Now, this was a time that people may not remember where I was mostly known for saying horrible things about Mac OS X and people who loved Apple hated me because I was saying bad things about their new shiny thing. And I was not supposed to say bad things, about. It. I was supposed to I was supposed to like it. And, uh, you know, it was the typical people who were anything bad you say about Apple. They were complaining and th- those people were much more much louder and much more common back then than they are now because i feel like most people are very secure with apple's success now for the most part whereas back then apple really was their success was not assured the ipod was just coming out around that time the mac os 9 was not doing well they weren't saying a lot of macs apple was just coming off of almost going out of business so the at the apple fans were a little bit freaked out and so anytime anyone says anything about it they would jump on top of you now Somebody made this article about FTFF and was, was filling it out. There's a link to it in, in, the, uh, in the show notes. Uh, and what happened after it got to about a page in length of people like saying, oh, here's where it's from and here's what the complaints are and here's what people say, uh, was someone marked it for deletion. And they said, you know, we would like to delete this article, blah, blah, blah And here's, here's a discussion page where we can discuss whether you think this thing should be deleted or not. And this surprised me because I said, wait a second, what what do you mean? mark for deletion we've got this thing here explaining this term and there's like you know i don't know like five or six or a handful of people from who were familiar with this term from the forums and stuff like that uh contributing we're working together on this document to explain what what is this fdff thing what's what are the complaints about the finder right uh and i was like why would you delete that isn't this what wikipedia is about a bunch of people you know Getting together to pool their knowledge into a common public place where if someone wanted to know what the heck the deal was, they could go. And that, that's why I love the Wikipedia page or something, because if I want to know, like, you know, some, some generic term like the, the octagonal restrictor gate around the joysticks, there's a Wikipedia page somewhere that explains octagonal restrictor gates and their history and a lot of time I want to link something to someone and I said, I don't want a page of someone talking about this. I want a page that explains from, you know, what this thing is before you can even discuss it. So here's a big article about something, but what is this thing? Well, will read this Wikipedia page and tell you what it is. You know? Uh, and, I, and I was like, well, why would you delete this page? You know, it, it's not, is it, is it bad? Is it, it's not, you know, one of the things like people think it's advocacy. It's, it's not advocacy. Like it's, FDFF is a term used by people in advocacy, but the art, the Wikipedia article itself is not trying to convince you that the finder needs to be fixed. It's simply explaining the origins of this term. And I did not take this this uh, uh, deletion very well. If you look at the, what I actually linked is the, the talk thread where you can discuss why you think this thing should be deleted or not deleted. And what you will see in this thread is me in 2006 as a, probably a Prototypical example of someone who does not understand what Wikipedia is, proving that he does not understand what Wikipedia is. Uh, You know, just search for my last name in that thread and look at all my comments. Anyone who actually who is above a level six on the Wikipedia scan, who like has experience contributing to Wikipedia, and who would not be surprised when something is marked for deletion and understands that whole process, will read all my comments. Say this person does not understand what Wikipedia is, and that is hundred percent true. I did not understand what Wikipedia was, and that explains my frustration and anger. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? You know, you you saying you could delete this? It's not advocacy at all. The term's not notable. It you know these these sources don't count as valid sources. I'm like we're we're just ex- you know I, I was hunt- totally familiar with that world and where the term came from, and I was thought you know we are those of us who know where this term came from are explaining it to other people, and and why would you why would you want that off the internet? Uh, and th- so. Let me do a sidebar here and say what Wikipedia actually is versus what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. What I thought it was was that thing where we all get together and we all try to collaborate and pool our information and try to make a document that, that we share all our information. One or two or three of us might have little pieces of it together. We have all the information. And then if someone wanted to know what the heck FDFF was, they would go and find this page and it would explain it to them. Uh, and, I, and again, I was clear that it's not a place where you would try to convince people that the finder is bad. We're just explaining the term. Like, So I wasn't that far off of what Wikipedia was, but but I was wrong about what, what Wikipedia is. Uh, so if I had been a good little person and wanted to know what Wikipedia was, you should go to Wikipedia because they explain very clearly what Wikipedia is about. Uh, here's what I didn't know. Uh, so this is quoting from the various Wikipedia pages that I've linked in the show notes. Okay. These are all prefixed with Wikipedia colon something which are like meta pages about Wikipedia itself. All right. The threshold for inclusion in Wikipedia is verifiability not truth. <laughs> Let that sink in for a while. <laughs> all right. And they goes on it goes on to say while verifiability is needed for inclusion it does not guarantee inclusion. Wikipedia has other policies and guidelines that affect that. But right off the bat this is completely counter to what I thought Wikipedia was about. I thought it was about everyone working together to make to, to find the truth, basically. To to you know, we're going to figure out what the truth of this thing is. We're going to you know find all this information, and we're going to get the truest possible page, the most accurate. You said accuracy before, but truth is another thing. Like the most accurate possible page that, that if you just some guy wrote it, maybe he'd get two or three things wrong, like as we've seen with the Isaacson book and stuff like that. It's like well, but if we all work together, if we were all working collaboratively on that Jobs bio. Surely someone would have seen, oh, you know, you're wrong about this, or those things didn't have rounded rectangles, or you, you got the wrong timeline here, or he wasn't called ICEO at this point. Or, you know, together, we could make it more accurate, right? But, but here's Wikipedia itself saying, what some, when something is included in Wikipedia, what determines that? Verifiability determines that, not truth, right? Something can be as true as you want it to be. If it is not verifiable, it doesn't go in, right? Uh, the other one is uh, no original research. Wikipedia does not publish original thought. All material in Wikipedia must be attributable to a reliable published source. Articles may not contain any new analysis or synthesis of published material that serve to advance a position not clearly advanced by the sources. So, no original research. You can clearly see from my description of what was going on, on the FDFF page that was like, that was like original research. We were, you know, looking up, finding, finding out what this stuff was, or sometimes we just knew because we were there, right? And we'd say, well, you know, I know this, so I have this fact. We were pooling our knowledge our firsthand knowledge in most cases saying here are the people who participated in this explaining what the origins of this term were. And yet we had citations to articles and, and, and post stuff like that like that. Uh, but as the thing says, Wikipedia must be attributable to reliable published source. Uh, there's a whole thing on what makes, what, did, what, uh, make something a reliable source. What is the exact term that they use here? What counts as a reliable source? Uh, And their definition of what counts as a reliable source also flew in the face of what I would think. But, but, you know, that's that's details. Verifiability, not truth, completely blows away what I thought Wikipedia was, and no original research. I did not understand that at all. Um, And so they defined what they mean by original research. So they defined primary sources. Primary sources are very close to an event, often accounts written by people who are directly involved. So that's we are all primary sources. If you're in that thread in the forum where that where people are throwing around that term, and you want to say, well, you know, here's here's another way that people use this term, you are a primary source, or you you came up with the term in the first place. I think the guy who was the first person to ever write it, who I, I think was the person who made it up, I was writing there. He's a primary source. Uh, and then there are secondary sources. So secondary sources are secondhand accounts of something. So there's a primary source, and then someone writes an article about that thing. So the stuff goes on in the forum, and then someone writes an article. Unlike Wired that says here's something that's happened in like the 4chan forums or something like that. That's a secondary source. And then finally, there are tertiary sources. We don't have to go past tertiary. We're lucky. Uh, tertiary sources are publications such as encyclopedias or compendia that mainly summarize secondary sources. Wikipedia is a tertiary source. That's another thing that I totally didn't understand. Wikipedia is not a place where you write down stuff that you know. Because then you're a primary source. Wikipedia is not a secondary source where you write about things uh, that happened elsewhere. Wikipedia is a tertiary source. Wikipedia writes about the writes about other people writing about things so is is any of this new to you? <laughs> no
0: not new to you, so you knew all this already. I knew some of it all right so but it's it, you know I understand where you're going with this and i I, I want to share something with you. My okay. mom is a college professor and nothing and my my aunt is uh like the director of a library at a college they their opinion of wikipedia y- y- you are giving a glowing review and almost a wholehearted endorsement of Wikipedia compared to the way that they feel about it they They think that it is i mean. It flies in the face of everything that they believe uh, a source should be, and they. My mom will tell her students when they're writing paper, "You may not use Wikipedia as a source. It is not a source. It is not valid. Don't don't use it for anything. Don't rely." So it's it's kind of a joke in our family. Any any time I'll say something about you know oh where'd you hear that oh never mind never mind because we can't even bring it up. We can't even bring it up. It's considered, and I, I don't know if I'm speaking for all educators everywhere, but I, I, I think generally speaking, it is it is detested by everybody for whom a an encyclopedia uh, or true published researched work would be considered a valid source. Wikipedia just flies in the face of that. We've talked about this kind of thing a lot.
1: K.J. Healy points out that uh, regardless of any particular Wikipedia, it shouldn't be used as a source because it's an encyclopedia. It's a tertiary source. Right. But even so. And and generally, if if you're writing a scholarly work, you're not going to cite a tertiary source because you're supposed to be a tertiary source when you're writing the scholarly work. You're supposed to be reading the articles and... Synthesizing them and an, uh, analyzing them, or whatever, you're not supposed to let someone else at Britannica do all the work for you, and then you just summarize what they said because they've just done all the work for you. But even uh,
0: so, you could you could use it as a, a source for information that was I don't want to say commonly known, but you know you 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 know what I'm saying. Whereas if you wanted to not coming up with a unique quote or proof of this, but just say, uh, by the way, these facts that I'm listing yeah, you, as as Inconsequential facts do have a source, and yeah, it was the encyclopedia. I'm just saying there's things on Wikipedia that that you might want to quote or you might want to source, and in education, they don't even they don't even want to see that. That doesn't even count. It almost just, dis- it, it it creates a disease among the educators. Well you,
1: you read an encyclopedia, like normal Wikipedia, you read an encyclopedia to learn. But if you are attempting to to, you know, forge some new knowledge, to have some new insight <laughs> right. or to write you your can't, own scholarly can't come paper, from you you can't you know your job is to to do what the encyclopedia did or whatever. But it's it's interesting that you brought that up because so this business about being a tertiary source. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to your parents because I think that's uh, that's a very key point here. Uh, but the fact that I didn't understand these things about Wikipedia is why I was so uh, completely incredulous about what was going on in, in that thread that they were going to mark for deletion that didn't didn't meet all these criteria and. I didn't, the the reason that I was so angry about it is because I didn't understand what the point of Wikipedia was. And I'm sure this happens all the time on Wikipedia. I'm sure if there are any Wikipedians in the chat room, they can tell you this is pretty much what happens. Someone thinks they know what Wikipedia is. They come in, they try to do something, and you tell them, no, you can't because that's not what Wikipedia is. And they'll just argue with me, argue with you until they're blue in the face, not understanding like that's all well and good, but that's not what Wikipedia is. You have a fundamental misunderstanding of, I can't argue your particular point Because your premises are all wrong. Mm. My premises were all wrong about what Wikipedia is. Uh, So, there are still some sicknesses involved with what Wikipedia is. And I think these sicknesses are, and this is something Wikipedia fights against all the time. uh, Because, you know, there's some weaknesses in the format. Uh, The first one is that In any kind of issue that's controversial, they have all sorts of rules about things that are controversial because obviously there's going to be controversial topics in there. Any page on like religion or abortion or any kind of politics thing, there there are people who would like to contribute who who have a strong opinion one way or the other. And they have all sorts of policies trying to control that. Uh, What can happen on a page like FDFF is if there are some people who feel strongly about that the finder is really awesome, that you shouldn't be saying bad things about it they can initiate the process of killing this page for not following the rules. Uh, whereas if it was a less controversial topic, it could have skated by for a while. This is not arguing like this is why the pages stay or anything. It's just a fact of life. Like, the more controversial a topic is, the more, the more it has to make sure it conforms to what Wikipedia actually is. Because people will come in there with an ax to grind and say, I've got you because you were actually you were not using Wikipedia in the right way. And we're going to get you on that. And I'm pretty sure that's what happened with the FTFF doesn't mean that that person wasn't entirely right, that this this article does not conform to what Wikipedia is. It just means that that's why this thing, that's why this comes up and it doesn't sit in a quiet corner where nobody bothers about it, right? Uh, and then in the thread, as I'm arguing passionately for a Wikipedia that doesn't exist, <laughs> about uh, how this article should be included in a Wikipedia that doesn't actually exist, uh, there are some practices that... I mean, first of all, if you don't understand what it is, you'll be incredulous that people are making these arguments against you because they seem crazy. If someone was to say to me in that thread, maybe they did, I don't remember, is that that's great and all, but we don't care about truth. We just care about verifiability. I would have just gone crazy like, what? You don't care about what the truth is? Isn't that the whole point of Wikipedia? (laughs) They'd say, actually, no. No, actually, that's not the point. And I just wouldn't be able to understand it at all. Uh, So one of the things they did in this thread that drove me nuts is... One of the people like someone who I think a Wikipedian who has no no stake whatsoever in this issue and probably didn't even know what that FDFF was or didn't even know what the finder was. Right. Came into the thread and was trying to tell me and failing to communicate to me that I don't know what Wikipedia is. Went through and annotated all the comments of the people in the talk thread with how many contributions they made to Wikipedia. Have you ever seen that before? Never. And that that also pushes all my crazy buttons because I would be like, "What does it matter? <laughs> you are a tortured, you are a tortured if, person." If, uh, are, you know, put judge the people's statements on their merits. It's not, it's you know, it's like let me just apply an appeal to authority fallacy to everything. I was like, well, no, "Well, this person said this, but then again, he's only had two edits ever in Wikipedia, and they're all up. They want to single out single single purpose accounts." and canvassing, which is like, and I did this as well, went into the forums and said, hey, someone deleted the FDFF page. If you think it shouldn't be deleted, come help me argue in this thread. That's called canvassing. You can't do that. So any account that was just created, like a single-purpose account just created for the purpose of contributing this talk page, well, that guy doesn't know anything about Wikipedia. So it's like putting a little score next to each person to say, well, disregard this person's comments because it's a single-purpose account. Disregard this person's comments because the only reason they're here is because someone recruited them to come here. And, you know... that totally rubs me the wrong way. Uh, I can't even say that I even understand the point of that. What, I think what they're trying to get at is to be able to identify single-purpose single accounts and Canvas users because they somehow are supposed to count less. Maybe it's because they're supposed to realize, well, those people are less likely to understand what Wikipedia is. But I think that those facts should be evident from their comments. If they don't understand what Wikipedia is, I think they'll demonstrate that with their comments. You know, If, they, if this is a single-purpose account... It was canvassed, but they make a sol- a strong, solid point that actually does a, a work within the framework of what Wikipedia is. They should be valid. You shouldn't be tagging everybody. Like, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was one malicious user. I thought it was, it was like... No, it's
0: it's like guy, the, it's the the mentality.
1: Some guy had an axe to grind with the finder, was going through that. I'm like, oh, this is like, you know, it's like bald face, clearly evil behavior that surely everyone will see. But no, it's a Wikipedian who has no stake in this issue whatsoever... Coming in here, I'm doing something that's common practice because in their world, this is a useful useful metric for determining you know, that rather than have to suss out this, these people's individual points, let's prejudge them based on how much they've contributed to Wikipedia because as soon as we see that they're canvassed or a single user account, we can disregard everything they say. And that's, you know, that practice just, uh, I think even understanding what Wikipedia is, that practice rubs me the wrong way. Uh, so through this painful experience, I learned what Wikipedia was. Uh, eventually, the FDFF thing just became a subsection of the Finder page and the criticism section. And if you go to the, the tiny little section where FDFF read, now redirects to the criticism section of the Finder page, what you will see is that all the remains of this page that was once like maybe a screen full of text is a paragraph. And that paragraph was mostly written by the one guy who had an axe to grind about the Finder. He was on me in the forum saying, you think the Finder is so bad. Well, I think it's great, and if you think it's so bad, why don't you? where's your better finder? Like, that was the level of the argument here. Here's a quote from the Wikipedia page in the criticism section, which references me. Syracuse, a web developer, has <laughs> been called on to submit a prototype of what he thinks to be a better finder. Isn't that great phrasing? He's been called on to submit a prototype. He's been called out. <laughs> you, sir, you must have, you know, to supplement his article on the topic. But he has declined to do so, saying, I'm a programmer, not a Mac OS X programmer. That's quoting from me from the forum. You can follow the citations and see it. That's like 50% of the entry there, the sentences about me, about this dude calling me out, which is a ridiculous fallacy that I think of, we've discussed elsewhere, of like, you think this movie's bad? Well, where's your better movie? No, that's not how it works. You don't have to have a better movie. You don't have to write a better finder. You think you're so great, you think the finder's so bad, where's your better finder? That, <laughs> that stands in the article. Because, <laughs> and th- this thing about FCFF, that's the, that's the that stays. Everything else goes, but the, the, the few, you know, can I say bitchy? I don't know. You can yeah, of course you can. Sentences from this guy with an axe to grind, that stays. Because, because you can have citations. That's low quality content, that's not relevant, but it's verifiable. And how is it verifiable? you can trace it back to that forum thing. Uh, and that w- if you look at the thread, you see there's all this stuff about me n- not liking the fact that that forums and web things aren't considerable val- valid sources and all that business. I-, I think even understanding what Wikipedia actually is, they're very slow to acknowledge websites as valid sources. Like they're, you know, much more likely to to take like some uh, magazine that has uh, a circulation that's one one hundredth of the number of people who read a forum page and say, well, that magazine is on paper. Therefore, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, more important. Uh, so... This finally gets back to uh, your, the objection of your parents and academics and people who are older and in education against Wikipedia. I think the main, uh, one, one of the big sicknesses of Wikipedia is that the people who set up the rules of what Wikipedia is, which again, I'll say is totally their right. They can set up any system they want. This is the one they chose to set up. When they were deciding what they wanted to make Wikipedia, they wanted desperately for the, uh, to have, what would you say? The word is, is leaving my mind. Not, not the confirmation. They wanted the blessing of people like, like your mother and those people in education. Sanction? Not sanction. They, they wanted those people to look on them and say, yes. They, they wanted the uh, affections of those people. They wanted to be in that world. The, their, the opinion of those people mattered to them a lot. Approval, finally. Approval. Thank you. They desperately wanted the approval of those people. Those people like your your mother and academics and and the people who are in that world of sources, right? And so they structured, they tried to structure themselves so that they, they would have unassailable authority. We have these strict set of rules that are kind of weird rules that is not what you think Wikipedia is when we just tell you what Wikipedia is. No, we are actually a scholarly thing with a set of rules about a neutral point of view, no original research, and just all these things that are just... Because that's what, if you were to ask a than the things like what makes a good publication and stuff like that, all these things, you have to have a neutral point of view. you shouldn't It's not advocacy, right? Uh, you're not supposed to do original research if you're an encyclopedia. It's supposed to be a tertiary source. like These are just pulled straight out of the world of classic paper encyclopedias. And the desire of Wikipedia to have the approval of those people made them make something that I think is worse than what Wikipedia could have been if it was the thing that I thought it was. It sounds shocking that I'm going to say that, right? Uh, so... The two points I want to make about this experience is one, I I don't begrudge Wikipedia its it's to be what it is. Right. You know, people will say, Oh, you know, I'm so mad because my article got deleted, or, you know, because I didn't get my way on Wikipedia. I, I was wrong there. I didn't understand what Wikipedia was my fault. Right. There, they can set the rules however they want, right? And obviously, the rules that I think are so horrible, obviously, haven't been so bad that they've that stopped Wikipedia from becoming this, big, this great big thing, right? The, the, the sec, my second point is that I think they picked the wrong rules. That a Wikipedia that actually worked the way I thought it would would be much better. Because what I I'm, what I'm, uh, want, want out of collaborative editing is I want the truth. And it's like, well, how do you get to the truth about verifiability? It gets all wrapped up or whatever. But that, that's what's different about online. Right? They wanted the approval so badly of the academics in that world. And they didn't get it, as you said. Your parents laugh at them. It's like, oh, anyone can edit Wikipedia. That's not, you know, it's they didn't. They went for the approval of the old guard, didn't even get it, but still c- keep those rules. And it makes their publication it, it just as bad as those other ones. You know, it's, it's like it's like Encyclopedia Britannica, but without the approval of of the academic bigwigs, right? It, you know, it's what they should have done is say we don't need their approval. We're a new thing. We're collaborative editing by the masses. And we're going to try to converge on the truth and we're going to use all sorts of ways to try to do that. But our ways aren't going to be the same as those other ways we're going to allow, for example, uh, you know, no original research. If, if some guy landed on the moon and he said, actually, when I looked at this moon rock, uh, there was a green thing under the bottom and, and someone said it was blue, but I was on the moon and it was green. Nope. Sorry. You can't put that in the Wikipedia entry because that's original research. You can't say what you saw on the moon. That's not verifiable. That's, you know, that's just stupid. Like, People are going to say, well, that, that's not what Wikipedia is. I know. I'm saying, Wiki, I'm saying Wikipedia should be something different. Uh, and the, the, the bad thing about what, what Wikipedia has turned out to be is that now it's got critical mass. And now you can't be like, okay, so fine. Like the Finder guy would say, why don't you make that new thing? Call it something different than Wikipedia and make your own rules for it and see how well that does. Well, at a certain point, you know, you get critical mass and it's very difficult to overcome that. It's kind of like Microsoft Windows in the 90s. You, you make a better operating system, Mac OS, but at a certain point, it doesn't matter if your thing is better uh, the the the, the damage has been done. The big thing is, is too big, right? I would like a world in which we were all working together to try to arrive at truth using every tool necessary, not worrying about what the rules of the past institutions that did this were, understanding that this is a new medium with new techniques. And I think this this uh, desire to seek the approval of this old system with these with this set of rules that, that are very much like the old system causes Wikipedia to have all these weird sicknesses, to, have, to, to make this culture of people who want to delete things because they don't fit within these rules. Like, nobody, your mother does, would not have cared that that FTFF page didn't conform to the rules Wikipedia set down. No. Similarly, she doesn't care that these other pages do conform to it. She doesn't consider them any more authoritative. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, it's, just, it's just been a, a horrible, terrible mistake that, they, that they've made very early on, and now there's no going back. Uh, and so the final facet of this that people brought up in the chat room is inclusionist versus deletionist. Even within the framework of what Wikipedia actually is, there is this debate between inclusionist and deletionist. And you can imagine where I fall on that. But where, where do you fall on that, that debate? I mean, like inclusionist versus deletionist.
0: I, and this is probably going to sound a little bit old fashioned, but I just hate the, dele- the deletion
1: policy just feels wrong to me. It just feels wrong. Well there's no there's no policy there's, there's debate within the wikipedia community of inclusionists versus deletionists. I'll summarize briefly the inclusionists are the ones who say if you make a valid wikipedia rule conforming page on anything at all it should stay there. And deletionists say even if you have a perfectly valid well cited f- follows all the rules of wikipedia page about a particular about the uh, the plastic nub on a particular end of shoelaces uh, and the story behind the manufacture of that particular nub and some pictures of it and some people who had experiences manufacturing it and the people, you know, it's like, but it was all well cited, and fit within the rules. They're going to say, who cares? That's not important enough to get its own Wikipedia page. And the ba- debate is basically, well, you have to do that in a real encyclopedia because you can't make the book the size of, of a skyscraper. Right. But but there's no not- reason to do. You're
0: saying there's no reason
1: to do that if it's, if yeah, it's online. It- and people say it's not paper. It's the there's we're not running out of web pages. Every time we make a web page, it doesn't make you know a, a new one. <laughs> oh, we have to pull another web page. And we're running out of web pages, and so it, the inclusionists want to have the the most extreme inclusionists would say At one end of the spectrum is everything is valid, and the deletionists are more like if we print this out, it should be no thicker than a, a volume of Encyclopedia Britannica. So we really have to say is this really important enough to get a page, right? So for example. There is no Dan Benjamin Dan Benjamin entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica, right? But Unfortunately, there is, there is in Wikipedia, right? So, right away you can see that well, Wikipedia has already acknowledged it's already that, way better than any real
0: encyclopedia.
1: Well, they're they're saying like, look, we wouldn't have room with this in a paper thing, right? Because we got to put in like World War II, right. and like you know dinosaurs and other <laughs> other things that are more significant. But Wikipedia is saying, okay, we can be we can include like this. This is a continuum. I was trying to give the end of the spectrum. Uh, Wikipedia is not at the end of the continuum with the deletionist that so it's like Encyclopedia Britannica. So they're swinging a little bit towards there, but there's still Wikipedia has this constant battle about, is this person important enough to have a page? Uh, the notability thing, not notable. You've seen the debates that come up about this, where some person who's very important in some community will get a Wikipedia page, and somebody, I assume, somebody with a stupid ax to grind against this particular person. On my page, a, my a, page a uh, software,
0: you mentioned mine. It, it, it actually... Um... Has that on mine from October of 2010. It says the topic of this article may not meet Wikipedia's general notability guideline. Please help to establish notability by adding reliable secondary sources about the topic. If it cannot be established, the article is likely to be merged, redirected, or deleted. Now, the funny thing is, since that was added, which you can, should I be looking at the view history or the talk section?
1: view history will show the history of the page and talk is the meta page but talk has its own history it's very very confusing I know
0: they have there has been so much discussion on this this silly little page about me it's like a, it's like the, a screenful yeah, yeah. It's, it's like two almost two screenfuls and basically what the people have done and I appreciate whoever it is that's that's doing this, uh, has gone in and added reliable secondary sources. They have a source to CNN. They have an article on the list apart. They have uh, a, a th- something from Gadgets and Games. They have a Fox News linked up. Um, Fortune Magazine. A lot of different secondary sources, I guess, that establish my notability. And they even have my my middle name in here now. Um, <laughs> so it, but yet. I guess so, nobody has taken that notice off even though – because when it first started out, it was like a two-sentence thing that said, you know, Dan made some web pages and did five-by-five. Five. And then, then people actually
1: went in and responded to that, and it's still there. I, I really don't understand how this works. You see, that, that's the whole thing about the, the inclusionist versus deletionist. The, 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 deletion, the inclusionist would say that notability is stupid because if enough people want to get together and write a page about Dan Benjamin – that's proof. That alone is proof enough that this is, this is a significant, <laughs> right. even if just you're saying, five people you're saying who does further.
0: it, who does it hurt that this page is out there? If there's five people who think it should be there, why right. not leave it? Why take it, it away? What's the concept of why pull it away? Why do that?
1: Right. Yeah. The the, 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 the crappy argument that comes up is like, well, these pages aren't free They take up some amount of memory on a server and stuff. I think I will just dismiss that out of hand because of the scale of things. The amount of memory that this page takes up is so insignificant that it might as well be zero. Uh, if you really want, if, it, if you say, what's the most inclusionist stance you could take that takes that into account, you could say, fine, then we'll see how many people actually visit this page and pages that only get one visit per year get deleted off the end of the super inclusionist version of Wikipedia. But so that's a stupid argument. But, but I truly believe that if people want to contribute to this page, it shows that it's useful because at the very least for those five or 10 people who, who are writing the stuff in there just for their own personal reference, like, you know, you want to put something up on the web so the next time you Google for it, you'll find it, right? Even if it just helps us five or ten people, so what? But I bet this page gets way more hits than the five or ten people who wrote it. Because people want to know who the hell is Dan Benjamin. It's not easy to find, like, Dan Benjamin's personal site where he explains who he is. Because people tend not to do that. Like, I don't know, because it's too too much, like, uh, egotistical. Or it's just hard to find a page of, like, look, I know this is the website you made. I know this is the product. But who the heck is Dan Benjamin? Well, that's what Wikipedia... People go to Wikipedia and say, this page will explain who the heck Dan Benjamin is. Right? And... I, I didn't you're saying know what's that.
0: the what's the harm in that why not have it there why yeah, why isn't there a john Syracuse page that's a shame i'd i think there should be one no
1: yeah, please no' I'll, well, I'll, we're gonna, we're gonna have to so listen page. I'm
0: going to call call to the listeners right now if you
1: oh see now you're canvassing the page will immediately get deleted no right. I, w- I think there I think you are notable oh, why would it be immediately deleted oh, uh, before you do that let's discuss the the notability thing so once you once you let notability, once you let notability enter into it then it becomes entirely like a, a game that is won before it starts because whoever gets to write the definition of notability determines whatever's in there. Uh, especially with people who have an ax to grind. I'm surprised you must have not have a lot of enemies because this page would not have sat here in this, in this, you know, notability questionable state for such a long time. If you didn't have enemies, uh, if you had more enemies, like I forget who the page was, but there was some open source contributor who was probably on some project that had some rival project and those people really hated them. Oh. And they just, you know, marked it for deletion, jammed it through the process. Same way like Congress jams through laws to people who know how the system works. just has got the page deleted. And it was this big outcry for people going, Oh my God, before we even knew what was happening, cool person X's page was deleted from Wikipedia because of notability. And then this whole big campaign to get it reinstated. And I think it came back. But the fact that that can happen because one person who knows the system can ram it through and get it killed out because, there are enough actually impartial people who really don't have any opinion one way or the other on Dan Benjamin or whoever this person was who nevertheless totally agree with that person's definition of, of what should be included in Wikipedia. And, of course, basically anyone who wants a page deleted that you don't think should be deleted is a deletionist. And anybody who wants to keep it is an inclusionist. So even those definitions are relative. So if, if you think the Dan Benjamin page should be deleted, you're a deletionist. But then later, <laughs> if you think a different page should be included, you're an inclusionist in that discussion. But there are people at the, well, I, the I think
0: you. I think you should have a page. And I would well, like some, for the listeners to make. And I'll tell you what I you say that I don't have a lot of detractors or whatever. I think maybe I just have one more,
1: one, uh, one more friend, fan, the friend than than. No, because if you had one powerful Wikipedia enemy, that page would be gone already, uh, because they can just get it. Get well, it, I do. Move. I send
0: I send Wikipedia a box of chocolates every couple of weeks just so, so they the, keep
1: it there. And notability, the notability requirement falls into the same trap as looking for approval from the the the, the teachers and academics because what determines notability is like did you appear in a paper magazine who cares if you appeared in an article that was read by 40 million people if you appeared in a paper magazine that has a, that has a circulation of 10,000 that's notable but if you're on a web page on some stupid website that had 40 million hits not notable because websites are not cool with the old librarians because they're not paper the notability requirements, they're evolving, but they started out and are still incredibly crappy. And it's such a, it's so perverse that this thing that exists online, Wikipedia, it is a product of the online world, has these rules that are so rooted in the sort of the oligarchy of the, the, the past in the paper world. I don't know if that's the right word there. Of just, you know, the establishment of everything that came before it. this this In an attempt to gain approval from that world, they are perverting themselves into this horrible thing that, you know, well, they're not perverting. They started out from this from day one. I think it's just a terrible, terrible mistake. And the fact that these people on your Wikipedia page are now spending all their energy trying to, like, prove to some cabal that you're notable rather than spending their time and energy and making sure the page is accurate and adding information is just a t- total waste of time. And most people won't put up with that. And that's why a lot of people, including me have completely checked out of contributing in any way to Wikipedia, because it's just like, forget that I understand what Wikipedia is now. And I don't want to have any part of that. And it's not to say that I don't love reading Wikipedia pages and appreciate the stuff that's made there. It's just, that there's no way that I'm going to get involved with that because I don't agree with the goals of the thing. I don't agree with the premise of the publication. And you say, well, if you don't agree with the premise, but you sure love the products that came out of it. I think within the framework of those of those premises, you can have good content. Uh, but that doesn't mean uh, I, I think it should be, could be so much better. And I don't want to get involved in that process because I know it will just frustrate me because it's not it's not what I want out of Wikipedia. Uh, and having your own page getting finally getting around to that. That is like the worst curse because anyone can write any damn thing they want about you on that page and you can't do a thing about it. Yeah, You're think not supposed your, to edit
0: your, your own stuff. Yeah.
1: They could write the wrong birthday for you down there. No, they you had the wrong birthday for me for a long time. Th- you can't correct your own birthday, but some stupid Wikipedian will revert that change and say, no, you can't correct your birthday. You don't know when your birthday is. Right. It's original research. You're, you're, not your to edit,
0: you're not supposed to edit your own...
1: No original resource. You're a your right. primary source. You can't, you know, put any, <laughs> correct your birthday. I'm sure there are <laughs> Wikipedians out there saying, actually, that's not true. If you corrected your birthday, we would let that stand. That's clearly established within the rules of... But this This is, you know... It's it really is a curse to have your own Wikipedia page because you have, and they're gonna say, well, that's that's the blessing of Wikipedia. You have no the person has no control over that page as well. They shouldn't. They shouldn't have their own control over their own page because then they'll just use it as a soapbox. But it's like if the goal was truth, and you put something down there that everyone that no one everyone agreed was true, like you know your birthday, like do you have to take a picture of your birth certificate? No, that's original research. What you would have to do, and this finally brings me to the XKCD uh, comic that I put in the show notes. What you would have to do is take a picture of your birth certificate, then have a friend who works for Newsweek or other paper publication write a story about your picture of your birth certificate and cite it. And then finally, Wikipedia, as a tertiary source, can cite Newsweek talking about the picture you took of your own birth certificate and now, you can, now your birthday is a verifiable fact according to Wikipedia's tertiary source rules. So the, the, uh, the XKCD article is called Cytogenesis, which is a clever turn of phrase there, as usual for XKCD, and it shows where citations come from. Uh, and it shows somebody using Wikipedia, this is a slightly different point, but similar, someone using Wikipedia, some, some person writing an article for a, for a valid source, something that's re- printed on dead trees or Time magazine or something, some web incarnation of a respected paper, respected by important people who were our parents when we were growing up. And they're writing an article, and they need to look up something, and they go to Wikipedia, and they find an entry on the Wikipedia entry for the scroll lock key that was put there by some random troll like the one they give us like the scroll lock key was designed by future energy secretary, Steven Chu in a college project. Someone just wrote that in Wikipedia. There wasn't enough vigilance. It didn't get reverted, even though it had no sources. And some dude writing for Newsweek picked it up. Then he writes it in his article. And then someone sees the Wikipedia article and says, well, that's not true. In fact, I invented the scroll lock key and that can possibly be true. Let me get rid of that thing. Let me, let me revert that. And someone says, no, you can't revert that because here's a citation in Newsweek that shows it's true. It's verifiable. And you can't tell them, no, seriously, I invented the scroll lock. That's not how it came to be. And they say, "Well, where is your source? Citation needed." I have a citation from Newsweek. Never minding that the citation from Newsweek came from the original erroneous information that was put into Wikipedia. This is obviously a pathological case, but it just shows the the many flaws in valuing verifiability and reliability of sources. It's it's built on uh, it's built on a foundation of sand. Notability. What's a reliable source? Those things become so key to making Wikipedia crappy or good and those sands are constantly always shifting you know it, and so if if wikipedia was centered on truth and that was its final goal yeah it would have to include citations and and verifiability and stuff like that but there would never be any argument when the, when the two are in conflict you know if you could prove that this series of events happened here uh then you could say well it's verifiable it appeared in a reliable source but it's not the truth and so therefore we should expunge that because the final goal of Wikipedia is truth. But the final goal of Wikipedia is not truth. It's verifiability. And maybe, maybe Wikipedians will say I'm being naive and there's no possible way. Well, how the heck do you ever get to truth? You have to have a set of rules and this rules has to exist. But to me, it strikes me entirely is that the set of rules that, that define Wikipedia are from a different century and make Wikipedia worse and make me and many, many other people who have come in contact with P- Wikipedia not want to contribute to it in any possible way because we feel we have nothing to contribute and nothing to do because we can't do original research. I don't like it when my things are cited. I don't like what the things people say about me. I, I see the inherent bias in the things that people say about everybody. But if you had lots of enemies, I think people could say horrible things about you on your, on your Wikipedia page. You could not correct them, nor could anyone who knows better or anything. You know what I mean? Like, it's a ripe... For the, especially on these obscure articles. like That's why the FTFF section, the major content there is by somebody who hated the fact that we said the finder was bad. That's 100% advocacy, but it's there because it's under the guise of like, oh, this falls, with it, falls within the realm of the definition, but your thing did not. I think they both don't, and I think that the entry would be, if it was a full page on FTFF, it would be much more balanced and informative and interesting entry than the stupid paragraph from the axe grinder guy uh, that's there now. So all this is to say, please don't make me a Wikipedia page because it was just a nightmare and it will just frustrate me. And yeah,
0: to be to be honest, I would I would and I've said I've said this before. I would rather not not have one. Yeah, and, I, like,
1: and I can't make my own page go away. It's like a time bomb, too. Like, you know, like any day someone who's pissed off at you for some stupid reason. Well, oh, like, the, the thing has know. been vandalized already 20 times not just vandalism but passive aggressively phrasing things that are nevertheless verifiable <laughs> you know like like the, the like the quote that i read from the thing you know just like well it's technically not against the rules and it's kind of a neutral point of view but you can tell they're just being a dick about it right yeah like dan benjamin made this website ostensibly uh, con- constructed a web page like you know <laughs> It's Some great. people said that it wasn't good. Like it'll cite three sources. Well, and though, you know, what's
0: people. weird, you know, what's weird is, uh, I had done a few pipeline interviews with, with somebody and I forget what, a, who, who it was, but I, I think it might've even just been Jeffrey Zeldman. And I put, cause this was early on it. He was like my first pipeline interview. And I added, cause there was a whole bunch of lists of interviews that, and this goes back to the original source thing. Um, and I had added a link to the interview that I did with him uh, on to, on the pipeline interview to his Wikipedia entry. And self promotional, you can't do right. That thing. That's right. And it, while I wasn't promoting myself; I was promoting him because I I thought it was such a great. And, of course, I was naive. I was naive enough to to think that something like this would
1: possibly and, be and, and beneficial and to him up. and and not self promotional to me. Yeah. And the reason that comes up is because, A, they consider the motivation to be important. Like, we don't care if this is valid instructive information. We have to be suspicious of anything that could possibly be motivated by self-interest. Right. Right. And B, the deletionist mindset is that, look, we can only have a certain number of things that, that talk about Jeffrey Zelman <laughs> on this page. Right. Is your stupid thing so important that of the five links at the bottom of the Jeffrey Zelman page, yours should be one of them? You can't be the judge of that because obviously you want it to be there because you think your business is so awesome and you want you know your interview to be there. So if you were an inclusionist, you would say, first of all, I don't care whether this is the most important interview with Jeffrey Zelman or another. Is it a interview with Jeffrey Zelman? Yes. Then fine. Then it's a secondary source and we should we can cite it. Right. And B, if you were, if Wikipedia was what I wish it would be, they would say, I don't care if this guy was motivated by self-interest to put there. He's putting a link to an interview. Is it an interview with Jeffrey Zelman? Yes, it is. There it stays. You know what I mean? Right. And that's the mindset you were you were thinking of. And their rules are so structured to be just be so paranoid about that. It's like, well, we can only have 10 links, people, and we cannot let this Dan Benjamin joker put in his random link to the interview. Now, Time Magazine, when they write a paragraph about him, you know, in one issue that we found, uh, you know, in, a, in the stall of an airplane bathroom, well, that <laughs> is notable. But <laughs> this interview that was downloaded 1 million times, not notable because it's on a website and who's ever heard of Dan Benjamin in this, you know, it just drives me nuts. Like, it is. It is counter to its own best interest. All of its rules are set up to make it crappier. And and I believe they do. They so do in, here's, in, a, big, here's and a bigger question then, John.
0: It, it, Wikipedia exists. Is it a good thing or a bad thing as the, the end result of all this?
1: It's much better than it not existing at all. Yeah. Clearly. Much better than it not existing at all. It's just such a shame that it started off with, with what I think is the wrong set of rules. And it, especially, and like I brought up the Microsoft Windows thing. It's exactly like Windows, where you're like, "Look, having everyone have a personal computer is great. It's just such a shame that the you know that they all it ended up being Windows. And now they have critical mass. And it's not like you can snap your fingers like, oh, I just make a better operating system, I'll unseat Windows. Like it's like Wikipedia. You know, you get that critical mass. in the same way Mac users were so pissed that the worst operating system won, quote unquote, you're just like, but you're just like, oh, it's too late now, man. 1995, Windows is everywhere, and it just it just pisses me off. You know, there's nothing you can do about it, is because my, Windows is the man, right? You got to wait till the next thing comes along, and finally, like, who owns the desktop doesn't matter, and you know, tablets are going stuff like that. But
0: Should people stop using Wikipedia?
1: I think it, it, the only way to to unseat wikipedia would be for people to stop contributing to wikipedia and start contributing to something better kind of like the same like the only way to unseat windows is people to to decide that windows doesn't matter anymore so what and we're all going to go to mobile and write is there an
0: uh, alternative to wikipedia that you could endorse
1: i i know of no such thing you know what about what about
0: encyclopedia britannica's effort to put everything (laughs) they have online
1: Uh Yeah, that's where you want to go with. go with the paper publishers. They're going to be awesome. I don't know what, if anything, will ever unseat Wikipedia. And Wikipedia, to its credit, does have some sort of process for evolving its guidelines. But they started off in the wrong spot, and they're still way too far away from where I think they should be. It may may be just impossible to completely unseat Wikipedia just because of momentum. Maybe the best we can hope for is an evolution. But I know so many people who had that first contact, there's a Star Trek reference for you, with Wikipedia and said, never again, (laughs) never again. Like that they didn't, they they, like me, stumbled in there being an idiot user, not knowing what the heck Wikipedia is, got told what Wikipedia was and said, oh, well, now that I know what Wikipedia is, I don't have anything to do with that. And that's totally true for me. Like, I want to contribute. I want to contribute to that other thing. I want to do that thing where we all work together to get to the truth. I don't care about a bunch of verifiable stuff. And I don't know if people say there's a conflict between how much I love to read Wikipedia pages and how much I value the, the content in there. And there's a page for every single thing. Like there's a page for tennis ball, probably, that explains what a tennis ball is and how it's manufactured and the history of tennis balls. I love the fact that that page exists, but at the same time, I would never want to contribute to. I I don't I don't even, I don't even understand in my mind how to contribute to Wikipedia anymore because I certainly can't contribute to any page that I know anything about because now I'm a primary source or anything like that, right? I can write, and this is a, the way do, how do you contribute to Wikipedia? I could write an article on Ars Technica and if they've deigned to consider Ars Technica a reliable source now, then someone else could cite the right article I wrote on Ars Technica and then they would get the net. So I would write an article, here's how it works. I write an article about you and some project you have in your backyard to build a treehouse. I write that article on Ars Technica and then someone else, a third party, writes on Wikipedia that Dan Benjamin is building a treehouse in his backyard. Citation my article where I talk to you. You cannot tell them that you're building a tree house in your backyard and this is your life's work and you've decided to dedicate your life to it. You know, at the very end of your thing, he started five by five, but then he decided to devote his entire life to building the most most awesome tree house. You cannot put that there, even if it's true, because truth doesn't matter. Only verifiability does and only through reliable sources. If I didn't write for Ars Technica, but just wrote for my Tumblr blog, uh-uh, not a valid source. Personal blogs don't count. And plus, since I know you, I'm not a valid secondary source, probably it just it's doesn't make sense to me. It's not the way it's not the way the internet should work. Someone in the chat room says A reliable source doesn't say anything about paper. Yes. The 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 things have been evolving, but effectively the rules started off very heavily favored towards like established publications and then shifted like, like established publications in their websites. Okay, some blogs if they're well known, it all gets back to notability and like it's it's all just one big giant appeal to authority fallacy, the entire structure of Wikipedia. Because it's all about who's important, who's notable, what sources count as reliable, and they count as reliable because they've been around for a while or or they're established. There's no criteria. It's all touchy-feely BS. And that's why there's so many stupid arguments about this. And and people don't want to engage in those arguments and say, well, forget it. Like, I'm not going to win this argument. You got your stupid Wikipedia. It can be ruled by you Wikipedians. Do whatever the heck you want with it, uh, you know, but it's not something that I want to be involved in. I, I know very, very, very few people who have thought, you know, not know anything about wikipedia got involved in it and stayed involved there there are rare breed Wikipedians most people i meet got involved in editing wikipedia and immediately were repelled immediately because it's not what they thought it was boy i think i'm going to get a lot of hate mail for this one what do you think no but you will get a wikipedia entry no, yeah. I'm not. I, I will tell you if you make a Wikipedia entry for me, I will not defend. I will, I will root for its deletion, but I will not contribute. I don't think I've made a contribution since the 2006 thing. Not even to fix a typo, because I don't want to be. It's it's just, it's just a source of frustration and pain. Because well, like it, I said, it, I I wish
0: mine, I wish mine would go away. I wish, I wish it would get deleted. You did, you know, we, I was, I was telling you about that. And we went down that tangent, but what I wanted to add was, I wish it would go away, forever. Yeah. I wish well, it would. Can.
1: You know, I can't believe don't really matter as no. far as the publication is concerned. And that's, that's as is appropriate. But the reason, I think the reason you wish it would go away is because you understand that it's this thing that has this increasing authority, especially now when like the parent, people in your parents' generation all die off. And the kids who want to decide it for their papers are the establishment and they're, you know, the old guard, right? Wikipedia will have a certain authority being Wikipedia, being the thing that got critical mass. And in this thing that has authority is going to be a bunch of crap about you of questionable accuracy that you can't correct even if it's just factually wrong because that's not how the publication works. And that's, it's frustrating to know that's out there because it's like, it's like a ticking time bomb. At any second, some person could go in there and make your entire entry to make you look like an idiot, completely within the rules of Wikipedia, right? They would be 100% valid, completely cited, solid page, A++, Wikipedians love you, and they have changed the entire entry to make you look like a jerk. And you can't do anything about it, and now in an authoritative source that people respect, you look like a jerk.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that's that's not the That was the old world. The Encyclopedia Britannica decided to make you look like a jerk. They could. Uh, although it was probably less likely that they would do that uh, than a whole bunch of people because since anyone can contribute, your worst enemies, your nemesis, can land on this page and, and make a concerted effort to make you look like a jerk. So it's the worst of all possible worlds. It's got all the bad things about having anybody from the peanut gallery contribute and all the bad things about... Uh the rules that governed uh the way things were put into paper encyclopedias. Just terrible. A little bit over, but
0: I wanted to get the Wikipedia. A little bit over uh one hundred and thirty minutes.
1: Oh sorry guys. A little bit over. Working on it. It's your resolution. Yeah. Meanwhile, no one contributes to the 5x5 wiki, which is not governed by such an name rules. Please contribute to the 5x5 wiki.
0: Yeah, people don't... Uh, we've got it linked. The new site refresh is going to be a little bit better, but it's wiki.5x5.tv. We are only seeking the truth.
1: Yeah, or lies. Just make it good. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. the rules that govern the 5x5 wiki are not the same. Yeah,
0: so I'll tell you what. If you if you you, you were one of these people that used to want to edit Wikipedia, just put all your efforts on the, the 5x5 wiki. We will... My Wikipedia page on 5 by five is right yeah we need to make one how about we everybody who wants to make one for John make it over there Google will yep. pick that thing
1: up and we I'm can fr- make and and you know what John you can edit your own. I'm afraid that people are going to listen to this and think that our main objection is that we can't make self-promotional pages on Wikipedia. It's not that. No, nobody's going to,
0: trust not, me, an yeah, hour, I, two hours into this, nobody's going to get that impression. Oh, you never know. The no, thing is no, no, no.
1: I, I want to reiterate again. Publications with pages about people should not be influenced by the person that the page is about, right? I'm just, that's not the objection. I think it's entirely valid to say that the person whose page it says can't edit it, right? Yeah. But, I, but it's not like a binary proposition. When you have the birthday wrong and the person puts the correct birthday in, unless somebody can, can do some, I don't know, they can't do research, unless someone can cite, I don't even know how to do it. Like, what do you say is like if a reporter <laughs> saw that and said, oh, Dan Benjamin updated his birthday and he thinks it's this day, well, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to research, like, you know, on, you know, find the hospital where he was born, find the records, you know, find the public records of birth records or birth announcements. I'm going to do research to figure out when Dan Benjamin was really born. And if I can't disprove if every single thing I find says Dan Benjamin was born when he says he was born, I'm not going to revert Dan Benjamin's change just because it's his page. Like there has to be you have to engage your brain and say yes, he shouldn't have influence over his own page. He's just correcting his birthday. And if you you can't prove that it's wrong, you know. And the thing that kills me is like within the Wikipedia rules, if you can find a Time Magazine article about you that had a typo and you're with your wrong birthday, and instantly your thing is reverted. Nope, Time Magazine says it's, it's the 25th. Sorry. <laughs> You know, not only can you not edit your own Wikipedia page immediately reverted for that reason, but a reliable source says you're not. So that's not verifiable. That just, that's not what I want Wikipedia to be. It's what Wikipedia is. That's the other thing I want to make clear. That's what Wikipedia is. I'm just saying it's not what I want it to be.
0: You know, John, for the first time, I completely agree with you.
1: You agree with me all the time. It just takes you a long time to come around.
0: Nah, not usually. I usually uh, still have reservations.
1: All right, let's wrap it up before I give myself an aneurysm.
0: Okay, go to twitter.com slash Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A to hear more from this man. He's very angry there too, I promise. You can follow me on Twitter, Dan Benjamin, much less angry. Thanks again to our sponsors, SourceBits.com, MindNote.com, and uh, Wikipedia is not a sponsor. What else you got? That's That's it. I'm out. Have a good week, everybody.